Welcome to the Basin Conspiracy. I'm Inyash Brodsky. I'm Stephen Zuber. And I'm Matt Freeman. Matt hey. Freeman, welcome back. I think you are now the guest we've had on most often, and also probably the awesomest guest, so <laughs> it works out. Awesomeness and how often you're on are directly correlated. Well, I'll just have to keep showing up then. That's Thank right. You. <laughs> no problem. We were talking in the Discord after the FTX collapse with Sam Bankman-Fried about how humans don't do decision theory, don't do strict utilitarianism uh, well at all because we're not computers or AI gods and we uh, just don't have the ability to do that. You also mentioned in passing at one of those t- uh, in one of those conversations that the frustrating thing is people don't even bother trying to make basic decision trees and applying any sort of uh, Bayesianism to their decisions, even though obviously as humans, they couldn't do it very well, but uh, no one even tries. And I was like, yeah, I have no idea how I'd even do that. And you said, well... I have a way to teach people to do that. It's super easy and barely an inconvenience. <laughs> that's right. I hope that's true. So, um, I mean, I've actually been in in the course of the Guild of the Rose. My focus area in, in the courses that I teach with the Guild has been what I'm calling practical decision theory. I took a, a course in uh, risk, uncertainty, and decisions in graduate school in like an industrial engineering context and it taught the basics of decision theory as it would be applied to like capital allocations basically complex real world problems that you have in business that you could usefully apply decision theory to and i learned a ton of cool lessons there later on went to less wrong and spent a lot of time on less wrong and was was always a little confused and frustrated by the fact that rationalists talk about decision theory as if it's this like esoteric wisdom that no one knows about when in fact decision theory is used in a very practical way by industry a lot and and furthermore i was annoyed by just like knowing for a certainty that the people talking about these esoteric decision theory concepts on less wrong just don't know how to actually do decision theory in the sense of like you have a decision you're facing a decision you sit down with a piece of paper and a pencil what do you do so I was like, this seems like a problem, and I want to fix that. Uh, decision theory is incredibly useful in a practical sense. And so my mission has been to teach that to the Guild of the Rose members. And I've done, depending on how you count, between like five to seven workshops on decision theory, focusing on, on sort of different sub-problems in the Guild of the Rose. You know, I've learned a lot in the course of teaching them. I know that the students have learned a lot. I've got a lot of positive feedback. I've got a lot of people who tell me they have used decision theory to make actual life decisions now that they were sort of stuck on. You know, it's at a pretty developed point now. I've got all these papers sitting around the room with us right here, which are all sort of just different, um, the course workshops, and they're all focusing on different areas of what we study. It's ready to move past the beta. It's ready to share. Yeah, you've been doing this for the Guild of the Rose for three years? Well, I think we started in the middle of the COVID lockdowns. So, right in the beginning. So, so I guess a little bit over two years now. Because we started in August 2020. The okay. lockdowns weren't in August. The lockdowns started in what? May. May-ish. May? For some reason, I thought in my head that it was January 2020. But I was thinking, I guess, January 2021, when everyone was still sitting at home all, all day. Hmm. Because I, I was in the alpha. And I this is true for every, literally everybody on the planet. That whole year is, mm-hmm. a, is a haze to me. So I don't know when anything happened. I, I may be using the word lockdowns a little bit loosely. Like what <laughs> we, we, we started forming the guild in early 2020. And then we officially launched the alpha in August. So I don't know if that was really the lockdowns per se, but people were spending a lot of time in their houses anyway. When, when the smart people were staying home. Yeah. How often do you use this? Is this like an everyday thing or only for like major decisions? Definitely for major decisions. This is a really good question, actually. 
I always try to like bounce ideas off of one of my close friends, um, Michael, for those who, who know who Michael is. I had the hardest time getting him to understand why one would even give the slightest shit about decision theory because he was like, I just, I just make decisions. I just, I just do things like, like when, when would you want this? And, and the answer to that question is you really only really need it in situations where you're sort of stuck. And that tends to, you know, correlate with major life decisions. Like, am I going to move to this other city for this job opportunity? What major am I going to choose in college? How should I approach this relationship that I'm in? Uh, r- big things that, that are emotionally fraught and complex and involve many variables. You feel anxious about it. There's an UG field around it. Mm-hmm. You don't know how to break it down. Usually what ends up happening to people in their lives is like the clock runs out one way or the other. You have to do something, and so you do something, but it's never you know the optimal. And usually we can tell ourselves a story and you know retrospectively like about how, oh, yeah, that was the right decision because it turned out well, and it's like, okay, but... You would have made any of the outcomes turn out well. Was it the best decision at the time? Probably not, actually. I'm in this picture and I don't like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I was about to say, can we talk after we're done podcasting? I may need some help. Well, similar to, to Enosh's question, my my thought on what questions to ask, which mm-hmm. is not, it's related to like, when do you use it? I feel like I'm 20 bucks and 20 minutes away from solving a bunch of problems, but I don't know which problems those are. Mm-hmm. This is This is related to that in that, there are probably decisions that like I'm not even aware that I'm on the fence about or something. I need to like train myself to keep an eye open for. Mm-hmm. That seems like a related skill, but kind of like learning how to learning martial arts is different than learning when to use martial arts. Yeah, I want to address two things about that. So one, in the guild we have monthly decision theory workshops, and like half of the decision theory workshop is some new material that I have formulated for that month. Which is, yeah, last week it was it was how to do Bayesian updating with like some example problems because that's a part of of understanding probability which is a part of decision theory um, and then in previous weeks it's basically been like we're just going to sort of take some fictional problems and we're going to practice breaking them down but then the second half of the workshop is always find a decision in your life that that you're stuck on and resolve it and it's interesting because it's like if you ask me right now, what decisions are you stuck on, Matt? I'll, I'll be like, well, none. But if you make me sit there and think about it, I'll probably find a couple. And they're usually things where it's like, you don't think of it as a decision you're stuck on. You think about it as it's something I'm procrastinating on. But why are you procrastinating? It's usually, or at least often, because you you could do it this way or you could do it that way or you could do it this other third way and you're kind of ambivalent as to which of the ways and you're like, eh, I'll, I'll, I'll think about that. Like, I'll think about that is, is usually a sign of you have a decision to make that is not clear to you. So everybody always has decisions to make that they don't want to make. They just don't know that that's the case. And having the monthly check-in forces the guild members to ask themselves that question, which I think is valuable. Sounds like a good reason to be part of a community such as the Guild of the Rose for for exercises like this, yeah. uh, in addition to the community and all the learning, but just kind of like the, uh, not forced, the strongly encouraged reminder to be like, hey, remember the, the tools. Mm-hmm. Take a time to introspect this month. Yeah. Community is insanely important. Like yeah. an actual community. What if there's drastic unknown aspects to the decision? Like it's just extremely hard to know how some things in the future are going to go. So that's that's like the perfect situation to build the decision tree. Not even just because it'll give you your answer, it, it may, but also because the act of building a decision tree forces you to ask yourself a bunch of questions that can be extremely clarifying. And you can find that regardless of whether you end up feeling like, ah, yes, I have now made the decision, I am now sure, you 
have a lot more clarity than before you built the decision tree. So just one of my classes right here is like the, the, the nine steps of making a decision according to basically according to me, because, um, you know, there's, there's a bunch of different ways of approaching this, but when I think about how to teach practical decision theory, it's like, how do you approach these amorphous, uncertain, you know, gut churningly, uh, emotionally charged decisions. And, and there really is a pretty general workflow to, to resolving that. So, you know, the first two steps are to list the options that are the possibilities of the things that could happen. And then to list the critical variables, which are basically the uncertainties that you don't actually have any control over. One of the first examples somebody brought to us, which I like it as an example because it's very not emotionally charged, but also sort of understandable that you could be conflicted about it is a guild member, their decision they wanted to tackle was, should I get a haircut? And, and they, had, they had grown out their hair and it was pretty long and they were like, so the options are, do I get a haircut or do I let it keep growing like this? And then maybe having asked that question, you say, or I could get it like trimmed and styled and keep it long, right? So then you just the act of asking that question <laughs> causes you to sort of realize, well, maybe there's more than the two options that I that I thought of, right? So that's already productive and we've only, we're only on bullet point one. Mm -hmm. And then the critical variables are the things that are uncertain. It's like, well, I don't know how it's going to look. It could look bad because my head is weird. <laughs> it could look bad because the stylist does a bad job. Mm. Um, it could be that I feel like it's going to look great, and then I have you know buyer's remorse immediately because I miss my long hair. Like there's all these all these ways that you could feel, and you don't know. And that's the thing is, even something as sort of mundane as getting a haircut, you can feel a lot of complicated amorphous like uh, i don't know i'm worried right yeah. and so just articulating those worries and nailing them down and saying these are the things that i'm worried about that's a step that helps you mm -hmm. even just these first two steps we haven't done any numbers we haven't done any ranking and you've potentially if you've just done these first two steps you've already potentially clarified things for yourself right and then we move on from there and we start to rank the possible outcomes and we sort of make a matrix of possible outcomes. We rank the outcomes. We assign utility values to the outcomes, which is your subjective sense of like, okay, I know that I would prefer to ha have long hair that looks awesome over having short hair that looks bad, but how, like how much do I prefer that? And, and, and you're able to sort of quantify these things to yourself in a way that feels consistent and there are tricks to making it consistent. What are, can you give us a trick or two? Yeah, so the the number one trick, it, it's um, hard to explain, but once you've got it, you've got it. It's called the, um, the certain equivalent trick. The phrase certain equivalent means how can you conceptualize the possibility of getting this bad thing versus the possibility of getting this good thing as equivalent to the certainty of getting one concrete thing. So let, let me give you an example. I'm a magical wizard. I have a coin here. I'm going to flip the coin. If it's heads, you get to have long hair that looks great, which is your preferred outcome. But if it's tails, you get short hair that looks terrible and you regret it. Now, in this box over here, I have your middle prefer preferred outcome, which is you have short hair that looks nice. And then I say, at what odds of this coin, 70, 30, 10, 90, would you be indifferent between this box containing your middling outcome and the coin flip okay whatever that odds is that's basically your utility valuation of of the middling outcome and you do this trick over and over for for things you're uncertain of you don't even you don't have to like do the trick it, it's a mental framework for thinking in terms of how do i equate certainties to probabilistic possibilities 
and this allows you to to come up with utility evaluations that are consistent. And so it also is uh, highly dependent on your own risk tolerance then. Yes. What I really like about the example you gave too was it could have easily been heads, you get $1,000, tails, you lose $1,000. In this box, it's $100. Mm-hmm. But the, the haircut thing is just emotional. Like, you know, how do you feel about stuff? And I think that's that's a better pump for this than like having to to factor, you know, bills in the end, at the end of the month. Like factoring, I don't know, numbers, mm-hmm. right? I, I, I like the, the intangible part of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, of course, sometimes money is in play and you can come up with utility valuations for money using exactly the same trick where you, you have well, like literally exactly the same trick. I think every human has you know, nonlinear diminishing returns in, in money in terms of utility. You'd much prefer to, to have like a certain $100,000 to a 50-50 shot at $200,000. <laughs> like most people would, would agree to that. And, and if they don't, then you just make the numbers bigger until they, until they do, right? The nice thing about converting things to utility valuations is that then you can arbitrate between things that are weirdly different from each other, like your happiness in your job versus an amount of money versus how happy you are with where you live. These are like wildly different, like you, you can like feel them moving around in your body emotionally in different ways, but you, you nail them down to numbers for the sake of, of thinking about them clearly. So in that one in particular, one of the things that strikes me as very hard is that you're trying to guess how happy you would be in a different job in the future. And how could you know that necessarily? So that's where the probability comes in when we're talking about the decision tree is you don't know, but you can usually come up with a probabilistic guess of, of 60% or, or what, you know, and it's all based on the gut, obviously. You have no real way of, of knowing, but you're pro- you probably have some evidence about yourself and about the world, and you can assign a number to it, and you can kind of kick that number around and, and ask yourself whether it makes sense. It's fine, but we, we've sort of smeared together some of the later steps. But, oh, I'm but, sorry. But, well, no, it's fine. I didn't want to necessarily trudge through them in order, but the critical thing for me is like once you've built the decision tree, what you just said is super uh, relevant and, and like a great point because... I think there are some people who have sort of challenged me on the idea of decision trees where, where they're like, well, how can you know? How can you know, right? Mm. And I would say, look, you build the decision tree. You put in the numbers that make sense to you in terms of the utilities that feel right and the probabilities that feel right. And you do the calculation and the calculation tells you, uh, yes, the calculation says you need to move across the country uh, to take the internship in New York City and abandon your girlfriend. And then you feel, oh God, no. <laughs> and then you realize okay, well, I've done something wrong. One of these numbers is wrong. Uh-huh. Maybe I haven't been honest with myself about how bad of an outcome it would be to abandon my girlfriend. You know, Maybe I haven't been honest with myself about the probability that I'll be super happy in this internship in New York City. I'm not making this up, obviously. You're almost using the tree as a tool to communicate with yourself. Did you end up going to New York or staying with your girlfriend? In my scenario where I actually used the decision tree to make it a decision, it, it was... The actual decision was, do I, do I stay in the town where I'm working on my PhD or do I move across the country to be with my girlfriend? And I did actually end up moving across the country to be with my girlfriend. I was literally taking the, um, the, the course at the time, the, the decision theory course. Oh. So, so like it was very like, well, I might as well try to use this since I'm stuck in this fiendishly complex and emotionally fraught decision. I'll, right. I'll see if there's anything to this. And so you did have the feeling of, oh, God, no, when you first did the numbers and you were like, so I've, I've weighted, I've weighed these things incorrectly. Uh, you know, this was like 15 years ago, but, mm-hmm. but my recollection is basically feeling like 
you know, making making the tree and, and and realizing that the calculation didn't reflect what I felt, right? And then you and then you modify things. Mm-hmm. I think some people might feel like that's cheating because it's like, well, you made the tree, and now you're now you're changing the tree to <laughs> to match what you want. And I'm like, no, we, the tree is to help you find out what you want. Right. You're incorporating um, new information. Yeah. yeah, emotions are very valuable information. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're exploring and mapping out your own emotions, and it's not necessarily even clear until you've done that, what you feel about these things. Because like I said at the beginning, you know, and like you said at the beginning, if it's a very uncertain situation, then you probably just have these amorphous blobs of emotion. You haven't even named what it is that's bothering you yet. Yeah. So that's the, that's the workflow. That's the main thing. That's the main like rep cycle. How long did it take you to make this decision tree? Oh, I mean, back then I I didn't have any experience and, and it was like the first time I, I had used it for like a real life problem. So it was probably a couple hours of thinking and, and maybe even like walking away from it and coming back to it later, you know, changing my mind about things. Do you think that's a good idea? I get a feeling a lot of people don't sit down and just think and try to apply numbers for that long of a time. For a decision that big, I think a couple hours is a totally appropriate amount of time to minimally spend on it right well sure but like you spend a couple hours as in like agonizing and feeling bad and like oh should i shouldn't i and like trying to imagine stuff but not actually sitting down and trying to write out things and put numbers on them why are you agonizing and feeling bad about if neither of the outcomes or if, if none of the ends of the decisions are like something that you're excited about you shouldn't be maybe you should Look another direction, right? <laughs> but I, I see what you're saying. You know, I think you're excited about both of them, right? You want your PhD and you want your girlfriend. Yeah, you know, it was complicated because it's like, what are the odds that I'll be able to finish the PhD remotely? And, and you know, and I did. Like, I kind of got the best outcome there because got the I got the girl and I got the PhD. And, and it's like, yeah, it was it was more stressful in some ways. But you know, I think this is also a good example because I think the inertia decision, the the oh, I don't want to think about this outcome, would have been. I just stay in the town. Right. We break up. I would imagine that more often than not, if you stay in the state of, uh, I don't want to think about this long enough, the decision is made for you and it's, you continue doing what you're already doing. Yeah. Yeah. You're not going to change stuff if you refuse to ever look at the possible outcome Mm -hmm. or possible options. Yeah. Yeah. Do you think, okay, I'm getting on a tangent here, but do you think that's net good or net bad for society? That people tend to go with the inertia and not change anything and therefore things are stable or people are stuck in low-key misery because they never pursue things. But as a result, things are much more chaotic and you can't count on stuff as much. I think things would be better for everyone if people were more willing to sort of live the examined life and ask themselves these questions and, and make a change when necessary. One sort of example of this is like everyone, not not everyone, I shouldn't say everyone, but I think most people have this feeling of, of extraordinary dread surrounding a lot of life decisions like for example changing jobs it's huge psychic weight Mm -hmm. and the truth is you know in the counterfactual world where you were abruptly laid off and then had to get a new job and then got that new job you would be like back on your feet and in the groove within like two months or something Mm -hmm. and you'd be happier but you're not going to do that because you're going to go along with inertia so you're going to stay in the job that's not a good fit for 10 years and (laughs) You're not going to be miserable, but a large part of what's keeping you in that job is, is an irrational and incorrect feeling like, but what could happen? It could, it could be a disaster. It could be just the worst thing. And it's really just not thinking seriously about the numbers, right? It's like, well, it could. Yeah, it could be a disaster. What are the odds that it's going to be a disaster? Yeah. 2%. And if it is, okay, you find another job. So, so 
yes, the act of forcing yourself to sit down and do these things, I think is only like, it, it's sort of only good. <laughs> um, I, I, I don't know, like, I always like to be pushed back on here because I can, I can get kind of evangelical and I don't like to be irrationally evangelical about things just in general as a rule. Like if there's, if there's a place where you think it's actually harmful, I would love to hear it. I tend to be the sort of person who always pushes people to take risks and try change anyway, mm -hmm. but that is my own psychology. And, uh, I always worry that I'm going to give someone bad advice and they're going to do something and then I've ruined their life and it's my fault. Because I was like, yeah, sure. What, what's the worst that can happen? You have mm -hmm. to get a different job? Go for it. It's going to be awesome. And then, you know, three years later, they're strung out on heroin on a street corner <laughs> somewhere. I'm like, well, sorry about that. <laughs> I think unless you introduce them to heroin, I, you know, but I take your point. It's funny because I, I love the example of uh, people staying in bad jobs because I don't know, this might be true. Literally everybody knows somebody who hates their job. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Like my wife works in healthcare and some people change jobs every year. Some have been the same, same job that they hate for a decade. I don't know. I guess I kind of get it. Maybe I'm in the bad position to, what month is it? December. Mm -hmm. In the last 15 months, I've had three jobs. Mm. That is a higher turnover than I've historically ever had. But I'm a big fan of like, you know what? I'm not, not living my best life. Let's, let's change this up. But there's also like, you know, factors of how much flexibility you can have with, well, what if the new job this and yada, yada. Mm. But I don't know, you mentioned like giving bad advice to a friend, like, you know, I guess what's, what's worse advice. Hey, you know what? You're unhappy. You should just, that's probably the safe spot to be though. Like that might <laughs> also be really bad advice. Yeah. And I, I also have this thing. Maybe it makes me an asshole, but like if someone's complaining to me about the same thing over and over for years, <laughs> I kind of just get sick of hearing about it. Mm -hmm. And it's like, Oh, your husband's still an asshole. If only, there was a solution to that that we talked about half a decade ago, right? Um, uh -huh. Like, so it doesn't mean that it's not still a problem and, you know, you still want to be there as a friend, but it's like, and who knows, maybe in the job or the, the separation example, it's like, maybe, maybe it ends roughly. But then you look at like, again, to kind of inform your, your probabilistic estimates, like how many people change jobs or get divorced with kids or something? Turns out lots. Mm -hmm. And many people work out great. Like, you know, you're not taking the first whatever alpha ship to Mars and seeing how that all shakes out. Right. Mm -hmm. You're encouraging people to, to explore practiced terrain. Right. Yeah. I think yeah. Taking energy levels into account is also kind of important. I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I'm pretty sure I've mentioned this on an earlier episode, but anyways, it seems to be that your subconscious or your body or something that you don't have conscious access to already has an idea of how likely something is to work out. It's often wrong, I'm sure, but generally if you're low energy about something, it's because some part of your brain is like, what's the point? Th mm -hmm. This isn't going to work out. You're not going to get anything good about this. And so instead you are depressed and stay in bed all day. And oftentimes it's just a depression thing. But I, I think if like energy is really low and you just have a hard time doing much of anything, then maybe it's weigh things more on the change shit scale because it means that some part of your body is saying, I don't expect anything great to, to come out of this. I mean, I think part of the, the the benefit of using like a structured tool like a decision tree or, or just that general approach is that you you can articulate to yourself what is in that box that that kind of black box that's, that's causing those feelings because definitely i agree like your your subconscious is is a super intelligent supercomputer that that knows things that you don't know if, if, and it's like well, what the hell are you talking about matt your subconscious is actually making all these calculations it's just not telling you the numbers or the reasoning and it can be wrong also. Mm -hmm. And like, it can help to nail things down, you know? 
you know, it's you know, subject to a lot of biases, which we a, often try to overcome. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, I mean, like the, the job change thing, it's like, well, you know, if, if you're just kind of like grumpy in your job and then you do a decision tree that says like, you know, the, the odds of me ending up in a better job is like 5%. And, and then you can realize like, well, the reason I'm grumpy is that like, maybe I just don't like this career. Like maybe it's not even a matter of like, I need to work at a different company. Maybe I just don't like doing what I do. Yeah. And that's a big, like, that's a much bigger problem actually. But, but it's good to know like, well, you're not, you're not actually going to solve this problem by working for a new company. So you might as well stay with the company you're at and then maybe go to night school if you're going to take any action based on this. Yeah. Or just say, you know what, it's, it's a paycheck, right? Like, like the decision tree does not always say uproot your life and move across the country to be with your girlfriend. Sometimes it says, actually, don't. Like, like you're fine. Just tank this for a few years until you get more squared away. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you can change what factors about it you can or something. You know, if you're the kind of employee who like tries to go above and beyond because you feel like you're supposed to or whatever, like you can, you can actually just, you can find that sweet spot of like minimum amount of effort to keep your job. I'm not encouraging people to do that, but like that is a way to. I get the feeling that's at least half the population right now. I have a friend who, and I I think it's awesome, but uh, I I would go insane. I had a job like this for a while and it made me want to just throw myself out the window, but he's, he works in his own words about five hours a week sometimes. Wow. And the rest of it is just hanging out at the office. Maybe at home now because it's post-plague. But he's been there for years and years. I hope he has a lot and of really good friends at the office. I, I hope so. But I think it's just like, you know, he finds stuff to dig around on the computer and keep himself busy. But I, the internet can only keep me on board for so long before I just go nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I need something to actually do. But that's just, we're different people. So right. we'd, have, we'd have different values to put on this decision tree. Mm-hmm. Um Pulling it all the way back to the the outline that we had here, we went through the first two steps, which was write down the things, mm-hmm. and 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 list the critical variables. So basically, you're listing the options, you're listing the things you're worried about. What do you do after that? Because I know I jumped ahead, and I I, I want to pull back because sure. I'm sure I skipped over something here. We sort of addressed these, but in specific, number three would be um, you bin the possible outcomes. So so by that I mean like very often there's sort of a a, a continuum feeling set of possible outcomes. You know, if you're, if you're thinking about something like how much money am I going to make if I change jobs? It's like, well, that's a, that's a scalar value. You, you can't, that's not A or B. That's so, so it's like, well, okay, what do I really care about? Basically I care about, am I making, am I going to be making more than 20% over what I'm currently making? Mm-hmm. Am I going to be making between what I'm making now and 20% or am I going to be making less than what I'm currently making? So like that would be sort of an intuitive way of binning that space into three buckets and I would I would just sort of personally argue for doing it in a three or two or four, trending toward less uh, buckets if you can, if it makes sense for you, depending on your problem. An ancestral number of buckets. An ancestral number of buckets, just because it's easier to literally easier to think about and easier to write down. Mm-hmm. So once you've done that, number four is is you rank the possible outcomes, and they can be. Uh, it, it's much easier to like show this with a picture than to explain it verbally, but like you can have some pretty complicatedly conjunctive options like if you're trying to decide where to live and you care about a bunch of different factors then you can be like if i have two options and and one of them is like short commute to work but it has a lot of floor space but on the other hand it's like in the suburbs so there's a lot of nightlife and then i compare this against like really small floor plan but it's really close to the nightlife. So it's like you'll have like a bunch of different things. So it's like, well, you need to rank those. So 
literally just rank them in order of like, what do I care about more and, and what's better and what's worse? Fundamentally, you want like the worst one and the best one. Mm -hmm. And then you can do that certain equivalent trick to rank the middle ones. Actually, so I just sort of blurred into step five, which is you assign the utility values to each of these. So having ranked them, ranking them makes it way easier to do the, the utility evaluations because you're like, well, this one's higher than this one. So the number's got to be low, uh, higher, which makes it easier for yourself. What if you expect the utilities to change? Like once I have kids, I'd prefer to be in the suburbs, but that's still like five to eight years out. That would just be something you'd have to, to factor in as like an uncertainty is basically, am I going to have kids and then how is that going to change? So basically you would have um, <laughs> downtown bachelor pad, but kids, <laughs> uh, and then like downtown bachelor pad, but no kids and downtown bachelor pad with no kids is obviously preferable. So yeah, you incorporate that as one of your sort of extra critical variables. I think step four is probably where people circle back to when they reach the end of this process and they're like, oh shit, I did this wrong because they realized they ranked things improperly or they bend them improperly. Maybe mm -hmm. it's funny. The example with kids, cause I, was talking to somebody recently who he says that they're planning on trying for a kid in the next year or so, which means in a couple of years, they'll have a, a baby and he's looking for a new place to live because he's like showing me a map of like where he wants to live in like the greater Denver area. And he was like, so anywhere like really not, you know, North of here or South of here. And I'm like, so you're not going to be able to, cause he basically highlighted like the heart of Denver. Mm -hmm. What it came out to be was like, he wants a place where, you know, preferably he has a good walking score to like nightlife and bars and fun stuff. And then it's like, I think he's overestimating how much you'll get to do that when he has kids. Th that's one of the things we talked about is uh -huh. it's like, you realize like in two years that won't matter, right? Mm -hmm. There won't be like, I'm going to go to the bar tonight. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and then it, so what maybe you should think about, and you know, this isn't like advice giving, this was just something to put into your, your, your thoughts here is like, what do you think the kid want will want? And then you can also think about like that actually won't really matter for like minimum of five years because two-year-olds don't go outside right or they don't go they don't go far right mm -hmm. so you know you don't need to be you close want them to have some grass that they can roll around in though right right i guess i mean like you don't need to be close to like a great walking path that goes to this nice park or something right because right. they're not going to be going to the park by themselves for a little while but anyway so like i think it's totally possible to put in temporal things like that right mm -hmm. and then of course another option would be if you're thinking like you know you said five or eight years or something you could say well what am i going to do for the next five and then would i want to revisit this in five years and move again or something or do i want to just move there now mm -hmm. like that's another decision to make right yeah and then that's complicated by am i worried that property prices are going to go up a lot are they going to go down what's the interest rates going to do and then you got to start putting decision probability numbers on those mm -hmm. yeah it gets messy mm -hmm. moving is this was one of the one of the examples i saw ages ago there are a lot of known unknowns but you kind of just got to do your best, right? And then, because do your best is not actionable advice. Like rank order your actual preference, like discover your actual preferences and rank order them, right? Yeah. Um, See, I hear, this is this is my thing where I get, I, I'm thinking like all these bins, all these various weights I got to put all these contingencies on things out. And I'm like, I'm just going to go with my default of take a risk, right? <laughs> which mm -hmm. Which is bad though, because what we're trying to do right now is discuss how to not do that and not turn into Sam Bankman-Fried and actually do decision <laughs> theories. So we should, what, I guess the decision helps you be a better person. Well, I think it makes you make decisions that are of genuinely better expected value for yourself. Think of it this way. If you make one decision every month using a decision tree that you have thought carefully about, then every, every time you do that, you're steering your future into a world line that is higher in your preference ordering, probabilistically speaking. So 12 of those a year is, is 
12 times, maybe they're minor decisions, but 12 times that you're that adds up. T- turning this way rather than that way, or, or may- maybe you're going with the decision you would have anyway mm-hmm. in, in many cases, in which case you just get to feel a bit more confident about that decision, <laughs> which is also fine. Mm-hmm. Like, like I, I'm all for just saying, like using it as a psychological tool more than a like, I'm going to reformat my entire existence tool just to say like, yeah, I feel confident about this. I feel good about this decision. I, I Even if it turns out badly for me, I feel good about having made this choice because the ways that it can turn out badly, I at least understand them and I've, I've thought it through. Compounding returns on small decisions like that really adds up. Yeah. To the end that you'd said, you know, it's possible you, you just keep going with what you're going to do anyway. If somebody did do this every month for a year and every time at the end of their decision tree, they went with their gut estimate, like their gut estimate turned out to be right. Would you think that they're doing decision trees wrong or they just have a really well calibrated gut instinct? My actual suspicion in that case would be you've probably not encountered a lot of really hard decisions during that year. Like you've encountered decisions on the order of should I get a haircut, which is is a fun problem because you can just you can imagine procrastinating on that decision because it's just like you're like, oh, but I like my hair the way it is. I'm going to, you know, but but it's not going to ruin your life because your hair will grow back. Mm-hmm. Um, it might take a while, but it will. It's un, it's rare that you have a big life deranging decision to make. Actually, I would argue that the reason why you practice intermittently on easier decisions is so that the tools are sharp when that actually hard decision does come along. Because, oh. like, I mean, everything you just described about having again, I, I want to keep returning to it because I think it's like a great question. Like, what do you do if it's just unclear and you just aren't sure about what like the problem is? It's like, well, if you've continually practice the the steps of listing the options listing the critical variables bending them then it's like well it's you you just know how to do that you just do it and you can do it quickly and you can do it reliably and you can do it without too much iteration you know iteration is always going to be part of it right because like you can imagine doing the job change calculation and then like the first time you just do the bending wrong like you say well, I won't be happy, you know, I won't be happy unless I'm making twice what I'm making right now. And it's like, okay, well, maybe that's completely ridiculous and unrealistic. And so you have to come back and you have to change that and you have to change all your utility values and your probabilities because you were being silly. Hmm. But maybe that silliness, like you need to know that you were being silly. You need to say out loud, oh, I'm kind of being silly about my expectations. So it's all part of the loop. So the next step Step six would be to actually build the structure of the decision tree. And, and the, the decision tree, I, I've never found a way to explain this like without a visual aid. Okay. But, but basically, each each of the... Um, so each... We, we have our four bins, mm-hmm. and we have the utility of each one in a number format. Mm-hmm. How do you do the number format real quick? Like, is it out of 100, you split it up among the four? Mm, that's a great question. So by default, what I do is I, my least preferred option, I give a zero and my most preferred option, I give a hundred. Okay. And then all the others fall between them in a way that satisfies my intuition. Okay, cool. And, and cause you, cause it really, it literally is just a number for the purpose of comparing with the other options. There's no objective meaning to the number. So you're not going to multiply anything by these then? Well, you, you are, but only in so far as you, you're, you're going to come up with a probability weighted utility if you um, multiply anything by zero, it's going to end up being zero still, though, right? Yes, but that's that's fine because you're you're scaling the preferences. So if it's if it's zero times two percent, then um, I, I see what you're saying, but I, I, it ends up not being a problem just because okay. because it's that's going to be your worst option, and that's all you want to know. 
Okay. Right. You don't want What's your worst, worst option. option? Yeah. It's there. It's there to have a floor for mm-hmm. where the other ones can can be above that. Gotcha. Uh, another yeah. way of saying this is that if you scaled it from ten to a hundred and you did all the calculations, what the what the best choice is would not change. Okay. Yeah. All right. So they we got a number between one and a hundred for all the bins, and now we're putting a probability on each one. Uh, yes. Exactly. So so you, your your tree has each of the forks in the tree or the the branching points is one of your uncertainties. Is the haircut going to look good or is it going to look bad, right? Mm-hmm. That kind of thing. And then you say, okay, 30% is going to look good, 70% is going to look bad. Or what, you, know, you, you sign those numbers. And so you've got you know, the, way, the way they're typically drawn is the root of the tree. The trunk, you could say, is, is to the left. The branches branch out toward the right. Mm-hmm. And at the terminus of each branch or the leaf, you could say, is one of your outcomes. And I like to write it down where the, where the outcomes are from top to bottom. They're, they're best to worst. And then at each of the forking points is your A or B un- uncertainty. And then you put the numbers there and then you multiply from leaf to root to get your probability weighted utility, aka your utility and expectation or your expectation value for that branching line. And then you end up with, in the end, uh, summing up your expected utility for each of your different options that you have in front of you and one of them will be the highest and then you say well, that's the best choice I, I broke these down really granularly so actually step seven is assign the probabilities to the tree branches step eight is you calculate the expected value for each option so we just kind of went through those quickly the, the assigning the probabilities though okay i don't want to say that's the hardest part because maybe just deciding what the utilities are is the hardest part but that seems like the most fraught with possible error where you just don't know like if you say 70% chance bad haircut, 30% chance good haircut, where would you have gotten that number from? Everyone take a shot every time someone says, where do priors come from? <laughs> <laughs> the only answer has to be, if it's something you really have no data on, then it just has to be your intuition, your gut. Okay. If it's something you can potentially get data on, then you can look up, like, how often are people happier when they change jobs or whatever, okay. just as a base rate. Okay. And then maybe you can even nudge that base rate based on, like, specific things you feel about your own situation how often do people doing this end up using heroin and how often are they productive members of society after three years yeah okay you know i do want to acknowledge that the act of coming up with your utility evaluations and the act of coming up with your probabilities is a inescapably subjective assessment that that you are making based on your model of the world and your knowledge and so yeah, you could make a mistake. You could you could be just totally wrong about something. But no one's better equipped to make these estimates than you are, right? I'm just imagining making a decision tree for someone else and assigning values to like the you know the various branches, whether or not they should change jobs. Mm-hmm. And say like, I can't tell you how important like knowing you know being friends with your coworkers is. Mm-hmm. Like I have no idea, right? Only only so if you're if you're wrong about that, you're at least the most right as anyone could be, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and also you're not going to make a worse decision than you would have made just not making a decision tree. You you were equally wrong about that thing before making the decision tree. Yeah. And, you know, one additional nice thing about the making them collaboratively with your guild members is that you, at the end of of, of making it, you show them to the other guild members. That's part of the practice is everyone shows them. And if I said I'm going to get a job working at McDonald's and and make $300,000 a year, then somebody else in the session can say, no, you're not. That articulated point of unser- of, of wrongness mm-hmm. <laughs> was not clear until you wrote that down. And so a, de- a decision tree, you know, in a, in a business context, 
especially one of the values of, of making decision trees is literally communication. Like, let's say that you're, you're a structural engineer and I'm a concrete specialist and, and Stephen is an uh, environmental impact regulator. We're going to make a decision tree for like how to, how to make some decision about this building that we're constructing. Well, we all know very different things. We're all privy to very different parts of the problem. And so if, if one of us puts some number on the board, then the others can be like, that's, that's definitely optimistic. And so you, you're collaboratively building a, a decision tree in that case. And it's, it's less about your subjective assessment and it's more about, well, we are trying to use this as a structure to externalize a decision process uh, and, and come up with the best numbers that we can come up with. Do you think everyone should share a decision tree with at least one other person after they make one? That's probably a good idea. I mean, I realize some of them are really personal, but hopefully everyone has at least one person they can share something extremely personal with. Yeah. So, you know, I, I find that for any of these types of decisions where it's like fraught enough that you would bother making a decision tree, it's probably something that you have sort of tapped your personal friend network for anyway. That, I mean, that, that's what I do. Like whenever I'm facing something like this, I I talk it through with my friends and it's like, well, it's a little nerdy and, and, and rationalisty to be like, okay, I made this decision tree. Could you look over it? But um, can't hurt, right? And mm -hmm. probably if you're like us, then all your friends are nerds anyway. So, Yeah, the answer would probably be like, fuck yeah, I can. Yeah. Rather than, you know, why? Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> At some point years ago, reading various popular science books and like various popular philosophy books, whatever the author was the expert at, they tended to view everything in that context. Dawkins reduces everything to some evolutionary analogy. And maybe running this by a, just getting a completely different angle on it can form, can give you better pictures on the stuff you might actually be missing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That, yeah. That's just, that seems super valuable. And, and maybe in a more, in a more actionable way than, you know, if, if you wrote a paragraph of text about what your plan is and you gave it to that other expert, they, they might read it and be like, English is ambiguous, right? Like, what do you, what do you mean by very likely? Oh, this is a funny thing, actually, is, is apparently um, somebody did a survey a, a long time ago. What, uh, numerically, what is, what does very likely mean? And they got numbers between like literally 5% and 95%. Or Who's e answering five on very likely? E even the word proved has this massive range where it's like it's like thirty percent at the low end. It's like pr proved means thirty wow. percent, and and you know it's interesting because like in some industries, words like proved it's sort of a term of art. Actually, it's not. It doesn't mean what you mean colloquially. It means like it's it's proved enough that I'm willing to put money on on it, hmm. and and feel some degree of confidence but that's not like that's not what a mathematician means when the mathematician says proved so that's you know that, that's yet another reason why as, as you know sort of nerdy as it is you want to actually try to put numbers on things even if they're subjective gut numbers still t me telling you 30 percent likely it, it is just better communication than saying yeah it's pretty likely i think you persuaded me because last week we did the sequence posts and we were talking about infinite certainty i think was one of them mm -hmm. and how scientists should start saying I'm not infinitely certain rather than I'm not certain or whatever. And you and I were, we were talking about, well, I'm certain in the sense that we both know what I mean, that like the sun's going to rise tomorrow or whatever. I feel like I should start just saying numbers at least mm -hmm. to the right group. Right. Mm -hmm. Maybe even not like, I guess what's the right group could just be actually be everybody because holidays are coming up. There's commutes involved. And like, 
hey, what time do you think you'll be able to be here? Well, I'm pretty sure I could be there by noon. And, you know, <laughs> does my mom hear 99% mm-hmm. or 10%? Yeah. You know, we should, we, I should probably just throw a number right there, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> it seems like that could save a lot of misunderstandings. Well, until you hit the point where it's like, hey, you said you were 90% sure you'd be here on time. It's like, yeah, but you don't know what 10%, you know, that doesn't mean it'll happen, right? Yeah. The, like the, the classic Nate Silver prediction thing, right? Mm-hmm. Where it's sure. like, you said there was, you know, 80% chance. It's like, yeah, that means there's 20% chance that wasn't. Um, yeah. yeah. But I, anyway, I, I like that. I think I think thinking that way is just a, a good tool for, for being more punctual, punctual and avoiding the planning fallacy in general because the automatic human punctuality algorithm is, is something like, how long will it take me to get there? Ah, probably 15 minutes. Okay, I'll leave 15 minutes beforehand. <laughs> and it's like, okay, but that was the median. That was like your gut median guess. If you don't care about being late, then fine. Mm-hmm. If you really don't want to be late, maybe leave 20, 25, 30 minutes, right? Like how much do you care? Is it a job interview mm-hmm. <laughs> that you really don't want to be late for? Yeah. Um, what are the odds that, that there's traffic? Oh, 60% odds that there's traffic implies that probably I should leave well earlier than that, right? Speaking of odds, I recently spoke with someone who was saying that uh, she has no idea what odds feel like from the inside, really. And so I tried to compare it to something like, well, you know, a 15% chance is pretty close to like rolling a six on a on a six-sided die if mm-hmm. you're doing that. And so what does that feel like? She was like, I don't have a fucking clue. I don't play board games. <laughs> and, and so just as a general piece of advice, I kind of think everybody should play a lot of dice-using games in their life, especially when they're younger and those things are more fun. So you can just start to get an intuitive sense, preferably even ones that use more than just six-sided dice. Because, mm-hmm. yeah, rolling a natural 20, that feels hard. Mm-hmm. And that's a 5% chance. Yeah. No, that, that's a great point. Having a gut level sense of what these things feel like is is actually part. So we we did these exercises in one of the classes. We, we did um, various calibration exercises. There's a few different ones online. They all have pros and cons, but doing some of it is better than doing none of it. What I actually made people do for the first sort of iteration back in the alpha was I, I said, we're going to make one metaculous prediction every day. And that's not quite the same as like the calibration game because the nice thing about the calibration game is you actually get the answer immediately. Yeah, like just the act of making these predictions and then seeing how your score changes over time, you begin to get a sense of like where, like, okay, I I thought that felt like it was 5% likely, but it turns out it actually, the things that I said were 5% likely to happen are actually happening 20% of the time. Apparently my my gut doesn't know what 5% feels like versus 20%. And then that's something you can actually work on and get better at. Another, Another way of practicing this is, um, an exercise that I've given, which is like I, I usually just pick an animal, like a blue whale or or, or a crocodile or something, and I say, "Come up with your median guess for the heaviest ever recorded blue whale, or crocodile, or whatever." You're probably going to be off one way or the other, and then like, well, how much are you off, and how confident were you, and you can kind of sharpen your your feelings about things that way. I just had a brain spark talking about numbers and animals. Uh, I'm not sure if you guys have been reading the Astral Codex lately, but if you have, then don't answer this. If you have not, I was wondering, both of you, do you think an ant is bigger than 256,000 or smaller? 256,000 what? Doesn't matter. Just the number. Uh, I'm going to say it's one 256,000th. So you're saying an ant is smaller than 256,000? I think it's one. (laughs) Okay. I think it's bigger. Oh, do you? Intuitively, you feel that way? I have no idea where this is going. Yeah, sure. No, I'm just just curious. I'm going to say one ant is one. Because ChatGPT had an answer for that. (laughs) And and Scott was thinking about it. And he's like, you know, 
An ant does feel smaller than 256,000. <laughs> I was like, God damn it, you're right. <laughs> Why does ChatGPT know this? I feel like someone's going to pose a stupid question like this to you know the next iteration of this, and that's going to be what causes the end of the world. <laughs> we will get to that in about... I don't know, five, ten minutes? I, yeah, <laughs> since we do have to do an AI corner, because I'm out of the loop on this, but it occurs to me that the practice of making a decision tree necessitates that like, you do have a scout mindset about your own future and like the things you're trying to decide rather than a soldier mindset. If you pre-committed, all right, I'm going to move at the end of the summer to do the thing that everyone in the movies does, to go to New York and become a journalist or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Um, if you've already decided that, you're going to soldier through that, even to every counter-argument that your, your well-intentioned friends and family might make or something. And there's no way you'll make a decision tree, at least not a fair one, because you'll be like, oh, yes, this will totally happen. That'll totally happen. My expected outcome is 100% happiness, right? Uh, so I think it does require an openness to maybe the thing I thought would work out isn't actually realistic or something, right? You know, that makes me wonder if you think this is a thing that is more specific to liberal circles. Because I just recently had someone point out to me that to model like what conservatives think is good in a more correct way than I was modeling it before is, does it increase or reduce expected variance of outcomes? Because the conservative mindset is more like things that reduce variance in outcomes, especially for your offspring, are good, and things that increase variance are bad. That makes a lot of sense. Following a lot of these basic scripts will reduce the variance of your outcomes. And that means less amazing big wins, but also less failures. And uh, and that, that, you know, that that was one way to think of it. But this also seems to me like if you're doing these sorts of decision trees, it means that you are deviating from the default scripts and your variance in life outcomes is probably going to increase, right? Maybe? Yeah, in the sense that, that you're likely to stop making decisions out of inertia. I guess these trees are one way to make sure that the variance tends more towards the positive rather than the negative. Right, because you're very unlikely to come up with a decision tree that says that you should intentionally quit your job and start doing heroin. Right. Um, like that, that's, a, that's a possible outcome, but you're intentionally, like if you're going to make that decision, it's because you think that's a very unlikely outcome based on you know, everything that you know you know, that's one reason we practice the calibration and everything is like, mm-hmm. and, and like forecasting is like, well, you, you want to get better at knowing what's going to happen, obviously. Yeah. Like that just helps you steer. And there might be some point where even conservative people are like the, the default expected outcome is too negative. Things have to change. Yeah. Well, even, you know, conservatively minded folks change, change jobs. Yeah. But they're less likely to take big risks on unknowns. Sure. But they're, it may be, you know, I, it's weird. I, I feel like I'm, and it, it, this is, I don't know, I don't have a good political allied, uh, allegiance score, mm-hmm. but I don't like big risks. Mm-hmm. You know, I I like things, I don't know, if if I liked big risks, I'd go to Vegas and put it all on, you know, mm-hmm. double zero, right? Mm-hmm. Or all on red if I like liked a slightly smaller risk. You like some yeah. stability. Yeah. Well, I, I think it's just true that it's way easier to ruin your life than it is to make yourself into a enormously successful person who's optimizing everything like there there are many many things that i could do that i can think of easily from where i'm sitting right now that would ruin my life i can can think of no easy ways to make my life much much better because if i had thought of them i would already be pursuing them in a certain sense that kind of conservatism bias is a bit rational like i I know people who have done the thing where they're like uh you know yolo i'm gonna i'm gonna i'm gonna basically throw away everything that's good about my life for a shot at this thing over here and i'm like 
man, I, I don't think I have a single example of that turning out well for them, honestly. Mm-hmm. Like done done unwisely and from just the spirit of of, of literally just like life is an adventure i'm like ah man how old are you <laughs> like and, and the thing is at the same time i respect what you've, you've said about like wanting to to take more risks but i don't think i like in your 20s maybe you can still recover from stupid decisions yeah and like I, implicitly i think that when you're saying take a risk it's like well you're taking a risk which you you actually think has has a good chance of just making everything better for you yeah. you're not flushing everything of value to you down the toilet right and uh, just kind of a nihilistic fashion. I'm I'm certainly not burning down the system, yeah. and yeah, yeah. That's what I was going to say when you mentioned that you can think of a hundred ways to ruin your life. Most of them, I imagine, you have to deliberately walk into traffic, right? Mm-hmm. You know, it's not like oh, suddenly I got the wrong haircut and my life is over, right? Yeah. Um, it's it's kind of deliberately making a catastrophic decision where I can at least in one or two steps ruin my life, right? If I'm carefully planning stuff out, this is I'm, I'm just trying to think of decisions everybody makes, you know where to where to move where to live mm-hmm. um what to invest in what to invest in uh where do you send your kids to school like i don't know i'm I'm wondering how much actual daylight there is between uh may, maybe the decisions like you said maybe they have different scale you know do i throw my phone in the river and uh become a hermit is probably not like a very conservative guess on how i would want to like orient my future mm-hmm. doesn't strike me as a particularly liberal one either it just seems I, that's a bad example I, but you know i really love your example of where to send the kids to school yeah. and, and i'll say the reason why is like i feel like almost everybody i know and have known in my life the way they make that decision is well where do i live and where's the local school yeah and it's like that sort of like seeing saying where do i invest my 401k uh okay there's a, a mcdonald's over there i guess i'm investing in mcdonald's 100 percent of it in mcdonald's and and it's like okay that's pretty that's a pretty high variance choice to just go with whatever's nearby and then go with that 100 percent, which is basically what people are doing with the schools like i i care about this a lot because i'm like I, I i literally mean like you're you're investing in your children's emotional health intellectual development the friends they have how happy they are with you and how seriously you took them as a thinking sentient being by sending them to some shithole school that you just happen to live near versus Mm -hmm. carefully choosing what you thought would be good for them. It has ramifications for your future relationship with your children, which is according to your 65 year old self, the most important thing in your life, Mm -hmm. even if it's not true right now. So yeah, like that's the kind of thing where it's, it's not even clear to you at the time that it's an important decision, but it's actually has like enormous consequences. Um, yeah, I know somebody who moved, who uh, of the the candidate places they were looking to move a few years ago was what sort of schools can we get nearby? Mm-hmm. That is, I think, the number one driver of property prices in America. Probably that maybe metropolitan areas, you know, proximity mm-hmm. to downtown. Yeah, uh, but uh, on on a local level, like if you're already in the Denver, Greater Denver area, what determines uh, where you're going to live is the school is how much you can afford to pay for nice school district that's i i'll take a word for it yeah it's just what i like about it is that it seems all too often the people just take the default well this is what people are doing and Mm -hmm. you know like i said earlier i was talking to a friend who said they're they're thinking about planning to have a kid in the next couple of years and i was the first thing i said was i love that you said 
thinking about mm-hmm. because most people don't do that. Mm-hmm. They just, it's, you know, oh, this happened, mm-hmm. which, you know, that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's always nice when you can plan for a gigantic life change rather than just have it happen to you, right? Yeah. yeah. If you plan to move, it's a lot easier than just like suddenly your house was underwater and now you're moving whether you like to or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Yeah. What was, we were on number seven, right? Well, we kind of blurred, and it's fine that we blurred things because the point of making it a list of nine bullet points is that I'm like breaking things down very uh, granularly in ways where when I do this now, I just kind of, sometimes I'll, I'll just do it in my head, you know, and cause, cause sometimes you just do it in your head and you're like, yeah, okay, I, I know what I want. And then you just do it. Right. It's, it's only when you really need, when you're really unsure that you need to go through all the steps. Basically, yeah. Seven was you assign the tree, the, the, the probabilities to the tree branches after you've written down the structure. Mm-hmm. Eight is you calculate the expected value of each option by doing the multiplication from tree to root. And then the, the option with the highest EV is the best option. And then step nine is something we've talked about a bit, which is you look at that and you say, does that seem right? Does that feel right? If not, like, why not? Like, like where, where did I make a mistake in terms of my utility evaluations or in terms of my probabilities that is causing me to feel this dissonance? Um, and even just answering that question can make the whole exercise worth it. Because it's, it's like, what's the point of the exercise? Is it to come up with the best decision or is it to understand why this is a hard decision for you. I mean, kind of both, I, I, I think. But at the very least, by enumerating the options and you know assigning how much you care about the probabilistic outcomes, you've at least forced yourself to think about a problem that you might not have bothered putting that much effort into, right? Mm-hmm. And I, th- I think you said that at the beginning, but that's, I'm thinking about like the send your kid to school example. Like if you're at the beginning of your first iteration to the tree, you're like, best school, that's the most important. And then you run through it and then you actually look at like property values. You're like, okay, so... I will retire with nothing and <laughs> they're on their own for, you know, buying their first car and going to school and, you know, college or whatever, mm-hmm. or literally the second best school, I can retire with $2 million and they get, they, they get to go to college or something. Right. Mm-hmm. So then you're, that, you, $2 million is the cost of a burger in the future. <laughs> <right>? <laughs> but, but then suddenly you realize like, okay, maybe the most, maybe the best school ever actually isn't all that important because the stuff we can get with the rest of it. A good example, my sister, when she had her first kid, she, called me this is before i was aware of brian kaplan's work about like how basically your kids are who they're going to be and you know unless you deliberately fuck them up on purpose she she had a daycare for her uh i don't know maybe she was two years old at the time her her daughter and she called me and she was worried that the daycare runner was putting her parking her kid in front of a tv for like six hours a day and she's like we don't have her do screen time at home you know i feel like it's not good for her brain and then i was thinking about it but the the next day, like the daycare that I know that doesn't do that is like two or three times as much. Mm-hmm. And it amounted to being something like, I want to say a couple thousand dollars a month or something. Like it was, it was significant. Then I was like, well, just think about it this way. Like, you know, you, well, a couple ways you and I watched TV a lot growing up and we turned out okay, but also $2,000 a year or a month for three years or whatever. She's just going to preschool. That pays for a lot of therapy, assuming, <laughs> assuming she needs any to recuperate from having botched television, right? Uh-huh. So as long as they're not, you know, parking her in front of like watching the, you know, I watch enough like this shit is, that I shouldn't have seen as a kid that I'm surprised I didn't turn out more screwed up. Like I saw. This assumes therapy can repair things. Yeah. But I mean, and the, but it was more just kind of like the intuition of like, think about what good you could do. So let's say she had a, a daycare, like how much damage do you think actually being in front of the TV is doing versus how much good do you think it'll be to be able to like send her to college? Mm. Right. Yeah. So it wasn't just therapy, but it was like the idea of being able to 
give her a down payment for her first home. Yeah. You know, do you think that would put give her more like a bigger step in life versus not watching TV as a toddler? Mm-hmm. I don't, I'm not sure, but that now at least you're maybe thinking of those things in a way that you yeah. hadn't thought of them before, or, or maybe even more sort of proximally, like like can you f- afford to go to the children's museum or the natural history museum or the zoo like every weekend? Because mm-hmm. if you can afford to, it's literally two thousand dollars a month. <laughs> You could afford to do so much fun stuff on the weekends, yeah. mm-hmm. which the child would find enriching and delightful and fun, and you would build memories. And the cost is, oh, they have to watch, they have to watch TV, which, yeah. uh, like you said, we all did. So, <laughs> I wish I thought I wish I thought of that because that would have been a good way to put it. I like that better than the therapy or college examples. I imagine that kids also get bored of TV and start wandering off and doing other things and playing with kids. But I don't know. I, I haven't been a kid since you know. Back when TV was still bad. <laughs> I don't, Maybe I don't, that's not the case now. I don't remember being little enough to where I couldn't, like, leave the room if someone had the TV on or something, right? Yeah. But, you know, I, I imagine they're parking, you know, it's, like, got to be Sesame Street or whatever kids are watching these days, right? <laughs> like, I watched, like, I remember I would have been, like, six. And I remember that, oh, it doesn't matter. But I happened, I know that was roughly the age I was at because I watched, like, the Chucky movies, the movie Arachnophobia I saw like three or four times on TV. I really shouldn't have seen that movie. Um, no, I mean, I don't like spiders and it's probably contributed to that or at least made it worse. You know, so like, but, but on the plus side, you can kill the spiders. So you're okay. Yeah, sure. But I mean, <laughs> it's like, I guess what I'm saying is like I saw basically and this is all stuff that was on TV, right? But, you know, you can put stuff that six-year-olds shouldn't see on TV. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I have a job and I'm not that terrified of dolls or, you know, impending spider invasions or whatever right so i think it i think it shook out all right yeah yeah i think kids are pretty resilient so i got three questions okay all right the first one being we have looked at the first page of the first pile of printouts you have and there are three four piles of printouts so i'm assuming that what we have talked about now is basically like the beginning course the broad overview and there's a lot more to learn well i i would say that the art of building a decision tree is something that uh, you can drill down extremely far on any part of this, right? You can spend the whole class talking about choosing your probabilities. You can spend the whole class talking about just how to break down the options, right? So, so the reason there's four pages is like one, like the one we were looking at is actually the okay. Let's let's remember how to break down a decision into a decision tree, like go through the whole process. But then there's also the workshop exercise was I have like a fun science fiction scenario. So I have this recurring setting that I use called Station 7, which is a, a space station in a, in, a, in a vague futuristic setting. Okay. And, and then I, I, I create fiendish situations for the inhabitants of Station 7 involving like you, you're desperate to, to get some fuel to power your, your station reactor. So you need to go to this asteroid to get the fuel, but it's a dangerous mission involving risk for this this and this reason and maybe you want to bring along a radiation shield but the radiation shield is going to slow you down and if it slows you down then maybe the station seven will run out of fuel so i i create these i create these fun science fiction scenarios which people seem to enjoy so far um to make it more engaging than just like every week being about should you get a haircut um and makes it feel a little bit more like a like a role-playing game um so that's what a couple of these are I was thinking of Oregon Trail uh-huh. when mm-hmm. you were laying this out. Like, do you go hunting? You might get, you know, whatever, bit by a snake or something, right? But if you don't, you'll starve. Yeah. <laughs> do you shore the river or do you pay, look like look for – I remember all those decisions. Yeah. And there's other – built into those is like uh, what's called the value of information 
exercise where you you like for example the one with the you know are, are you gonna are you gonna go get the fuel and then it's like okay well a, a super intelligent ai is passing through the sector and they're willing to sell you the information about like whether whether or not there's going to be a radiation storm they'll just tell you so how much would you be willing to pay them for that information so that now you're certain and you can know whether or not you want to bring and like so so you can you can use your decision tree and then you can kind of build a counterfactual version of your decision tree and you can come up with the amount that you should be willing to pay for information and there there are situations in life where you would be willing to pay for more information rather than just making the decision based on your current level of, of, of knowledge. This actually brings to mind when I'm thinking about what decision to make and I'm like, okay, well, if this happens, then, then this, and then if that, then this, and I'll go down a few chains along, you know, from a few different starting points, given possible information that could come in. And then I realize, like, you know, you're just sitting here running in circles when like, you know, the information will be here next week. Why don't you just wait? Mm -hmm. Like, so you've, you've roughed out, you've mapped out roughly, where you're thinking this could go, but instead of sitting here just worrying about it, wait a week until you hear whether or not you have the interview, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have to decide whether or not you're moving to LA to do the thing until they offer you a job. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's still handy to, to weigh out though, okay, assuming this outcome, then what would I do, right? You can mm -hmm. still get ahead of stuff. I, I guess I'm curious on your guys' feedback, if there's a, a useful time to where it's like, you know what, just quit worrying about it until you get more data. Because it's really easy to say that forever, but... Maybe it depends on the kind of person you are, how much time you're you're burning, running through the same loops, right? Yeah, I guess for for me personally, like if if there's something I'm losing sleep over, and and like I'm supposed to be having quality time with the kids, but I'm actually just ruminating on this this thing, then like that to me is a sign that I I need to sort of bring this into my system too, and break it down. And sometimes it doesn't even help, but usually it does. You know, sometimes sometimes <laughs> you're just like this is just so uh scary right that that you're you're just not gonna be able to to stop thinking about it until but very often that's because you're like waiting for something that you have no control over which is just a situation that humans are bad at dealing with in general and i don't think that i don't think this is necessarily a magic tool that's going to resolve that problem for you solid answer thoughts additions no. pass <laughs> well it's, no not really all right yeah. right on we don't even have to talk about this, but I, I was the context of, of this coming up in the Discord was was complaining about uh, utilitarians and Sam Bankman Fried and everything. That was going to be my second question. Okay. So okay. this is perfect. Okay, did you did you have a particular way of uh, asking that you wanted to to frame it? Let's see how you were going to frame it. Maybe that'll be okay. better. So so basically, like those who are EAs or have thought about utilitarianism will maybe by by this point in the conversation be like. You keep using utility, but it's in such a different way than I'm used to hearing it, right? Because when I say utility, every time I, I mean your subjective first-person assessment of the value relative to other things you care about. Not quality-adjusted life years. Not quality-adjusted yeah. life years. And utilitarianism, as it is used on Less Wrong and EA Forum, etc., is very often they are doing some kind of attempt at, like, objective utility. For the entire human race and possibly the entire human race for all of perpetuity yeah and and to me i'm like that just makes you into ozymandias from <laughs> watchmen okay you say that but i'm still not sure he wasn't the hero and and that's so, so my my honest rejoinder is like that's fine but that's because of your own personal subjective assessment of the situation and the outcomes that's not because any of us can have a God level view of, of what another, another human life is actually worth. Right. So, so like the way I think about this stuff is like, 
what sounds cold-blooded, but what is, what is actually the way humans are, and, and I don't think you can even escape from it, which is I care about me and mine the most, and then I care about the people slightly outside of that circle, and then I mm-hmm. care less about the people slightly outside of that circle, and then I care somewhat about the people way outside of that circle. And pretending that's not true, and pretending you care just as much about someone who you're get, getting a malaria net to as you care about your own you know, romantic partner, you're just lying to yourself. And you're gonna, you're, you're making a, a, a psychological mistake. You're, you're privileging like this sort of narrative about yourself as, as a kind of heroic, selfless actor in the world over, over everything else that is actually salient to you in your life. And you can kind of get by making this mistake if you're just, say, using it to allocate a few thousand dollars a year and, and you can afford to spend the money and so forth. But if you start allocating other people's $9 billion, yeah. then you are now a, a villain. And honestly, I don't even believe that Bankman Freed was acting in good faith personally. Yeah. I, I think that he's a con artist. Um, but uh, uh, t- to me, I'm just like, I have nothing against giving you know lots of money to, to foreign people in need. But it's do that because that's what you've decided you care about, not because somebody has like, convinced you with rhetorical flourish that you know using an analogy to a child drowning in a pond and then like and then like sort of jujitsuing you into agreeing that you're obligated to give away your money it's like you don't really believe that and you feel really weird about it and i know that you do so just be honest like am i off base like am i being a weirdo here no you're spot on and i love it you know (laughs) the fun thing about the the child in the pond analogy is that like you know, until you're sacrificing something of comparable moral worth to that kid's life, you're not sacrificing. An, you're you're being a selfish monster by the analogy, right? Mm-hmm. So you know, if it's your shoes, your your thousand dollar cell phone, whatever, it's like that's a child. Mm-hmm. You're psychopath. Your car, right? Your house, right? Everything that you have worked to build over the last thirty years. I mean, so at some point, you might be able to like tip that and say, well, look, you know, I need to have a house if I'm going to keep you know, living long enough to pull more kids out of the lake or something. Really? But... You, you you expect there's going to be so many more kids you're going to be pulling out of lakes in your future. Well, I mean, there's there's a lot of kids in lakes with this analogy of giving to effective charities, right? I completely agree with you. But then every now and then people keep bringing it back to things like, well, if you have $10,000 to allocate in a hospital, you should allocate it to saving 10 people as opposed to saving one person that needs a $10,000 surgery or 10 people that need to you know, one one thousand dollar surgeries. I'm like, okay, I guess that's true. And they're like, and thus that extrapolates to it's better to steal nine billion dollars and risk it on something that has great expected utility. I'm like, mm. I don't. I have. I not- see how the mathematics works there, but I don't believe you. Yeah. Well, and the, and there's a jump where it's your money in the first analogy and someone else's money in the second. Like it's true too. But but the, the other thing, and this is what but I was if thinking they were of. good people. They would give those ten thousand dollars to save that those ten people, right? Yeah, I'm going to table that for a second while I remember my other point, which was mm. like giving money to charity and stuff is great. I I don't know why I'm hemming and hawing about it. I give money to charity, and I never think about it. Mm-hmm. It does it does nothing for my it do, it's a blip on my like my happiness scale, which mm-hmm. is a bummer because if if we were calibrated the way that like if, if we were calibrated differently, it might actually make me really happy, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but as it is, like. But it makes you very happy to, like, buy a book for your niece. Well, exactly. That's the thing, right? So it's like, of course, your money will go further in the third world buying cheap medicine for people who need it. Or can you imagine getting, you know, the look on your on your kid's face when you give them a Nintendo Switch? Like, 
and it's not it's not because you're selfish it's because you're a human mm-hmm. and I, th- I think you need to be human first yeah and then when you when you've satisfied that then you can start looking around right yeah but the, the other the other way to spin this what i was trying to think of before like your your circle of care how it expands out in in cases of like when you're when you have more slack and more um ability to split, spread that kind of flourishing conversely like when things are more and more of an emergency those things are the first to go like mm-hmm. the people further out right mm-hmm. and at some point it's like okay look the building's on fire i'm gonna start elbowing past people yeah. right to get because i've got my kid in my arms i will kill all of you to get out of this building right mm-hmm. just violently getting past them to, to save your own stuff i don't know to, to anyone who would say nope i would stand and like hold my baby because if we were in the line we'd be a little slower you know, exiting down the fire escape or whatever. So I wouldn't want to slow those other people down. Anyone who says they would do that, I think you're right. It's just lying. Or they, I think they might be psychologically damaged, mm-hmm. right? Well, I remember the club fire that killed like 100 people 10 years ago. If those people, instead of trying to rush the door and all getting jammed and preventing anyone from escaping, had gone out more sedately, it would have been maybe five people, you know? Right. And I don't mean that there's... Yeah, there's every... This is, for some reason... In elementary school, there's a lot of emphasis on being on fire or being near fire. <laughs> uh, everyone remember stop, drop, and roll from school? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like we're going to be on fire all the time. Or like, you know, all the fire drills we did where you quietly and orderly exit the building. Uh, luckily, that's never come up in real life. But That is the correct way to get out of a building. That is the correct yeah. way to get out of a building, and I think it was drilled into us. And yeah. I think that that... But you're just saying that you wouldn't do that, and the people who do do that are monsters. I was saying that if, if your reasoning for that was because, well, I'll be a little slower because I'm burdened by carrying my child... So I'm going to let everyone else go first. Well, you don't let them go first, but you still are orderly. You shouldn't elbow your way out. No, no. I'm, I'm, I I, mean, it, whatever. The walls are coming down. People are, it's, you know, now you're in the last five who are going to die, right? So I torture the analogy, however, but I was saying that, like, what I was trying to get across is, like, it makes sense to privilege you and yours over other people when, when needed, uh, even if, like, you being at the front of the line with your kid means that three more people are going to die than would have. It's like... Somehow I can live with that because my kid didn't die in the fire, right? Yeah. I don't have kids, it's, but I'm assuming that's that's the thinking. Th- yeah. I mean, I think th- like the reason it's hard to come up with these analogies and so forth is because the world rarely, if ever, looks like this. And also there's other sort of what I can, all, what I can only refer to as, you know, nth order considerations that, that also matter in a consequentialist framework, but that are impossible to put a number to. Like what kind of world do you want to live in? Okay, here's another analogy that probably is going to not not connect because analogies never work for this. But like, in the in the military, you know, you never leave a man behind. Mm. Is that literally never? Okay, but the the odds of of more men dying in our attempt to rescue that one private are very high. Mm-hmm. But we're still going to do it. Why? The net utility is negative. We're going to lose so many men. Why would we do this? Well, maybe that's just the military we we want. Maybe we want. We let's pretend that we're in the military for the sake of the argument and say, maybe we want to know that if we are the one left behind, our brothers will come for us. Mm-hmm. And that to me, I'm willing to be the guy who dies saving Private Ryan if the odds are that I could be Private Ryan and my brothers might come save me. And, that, and so it's like overall unit cohesion in the military goes up, which is more important than maybe losing five ten guys and then and then maybe you win the war yeah and in circumstances where you're not saving private ryan but like everything else you're doing just having that level of like you said cohesion and trust and Mm -hmm. whatever it turns out that that analogously you know leads to like societal cohesion actually really matters yeah Yeah. people are less likely to risk their life for a cause if they don't feel that 
they would be taken care of. Yeah. And so this is where, like... like the others wouldn't risk their lives for them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this is why, like, I never lose any, you know, and I, I don't know if I, like, we did the, the virtue ethics episode of a while ago. Like, I don't, I don't like, I wouldn't say, yes, I'm a utilitarian. I'm sympathetic to the, the consequentialist outlook, but, like, the, I, I was going to draw an analogy to, like, the Saving Private Ryan thing versus, like, well, do you sacrifice this person? Like, the, the, the sadistic surgeon, right? Mm. Let's save high people by, by, by capturing this person, right? Mm. It's like, it, the societal cohesion of living in that world is actually terrible, right? Yeah. So yeah. th- that's that's all I was going to get at. So how would you, using the decision tree, um, demonstrate that it's bad to murder one person for a million dollars to save a thousand people? Um, because it would make me hate myself for the rest <laughs> of my life. And what I if w- you're a bad person that doesn't hate yourself for murdering a random person? Um, okay, so... L- since it's so repugnant to me, I'm going to say we're talking about Bob, who's, who's over here. Bob is a, is a bad person mm-hmm. who who wouldn't mind killing someone for a million dollars. Because he's going to donate all of those million dollars to saving lives. I, the thing about Bob is maybe he's just going to use it to buy hookers and blow. I, but he's made a very solid promise it, yeah. that he will use no uh-huh. more than 10% for hookers and blow. Yeah. So, so it'll but, be net positive. But like that's the thing is, is, is it is a sort of morally neutral algorithm where Bob is allowed – if Bob really believes that murdering somebody for a million dollars will make him happier and, and steer the future higher in his preference ordering – then, then that's what he's gonna do. The thing is, Bob mm. would have probably done that without a decision tree. <laughs> Where, whereas, you know, the risk is that you like delude yourself into thinking that you're that you're making a better world when you're just a murderer now. Yeah. Um, and the decision tree <laughs> might prevent you from deluding yourself in that way. I would hope that when you look at the decision tree in the end, you are you are basically you have a certainty of hating yourself for the rest of your life because you're a murderer. Um, and a probability, or you could even say a certainty, a, a relatively high probability of extending the lives of a bunch of people that you'll never meet in some statistical and abstract way. What if someone were to say that, yes, you'll hate yourself for the rest of your life, but that is a worthy sacrifice? Even if you commit suicide two weeks later, that's a total of two deaths for saving you know, 10,000 people. Wasn't that worth it? Oh, not wor- to me, but, but yeah, exactly. I would say sure. w- w- worth it according to in the in the abstract. See, I'm I'm not sure that there is an abstract. Okay. Now, now, okay, that, that's the reason why rationalists talk about this all the time is fundamentally because we're trying to program this into the computer so the computer will make the right decisions, yeah. and the computer doesn't have our gut level ability to assess utilities, which is actually a huge problem. Because when you're limited to talking about quality-adjusted life years and, and so forth, like that is just a really weird and inhuman way of talking about things. And, and I think we've gotten like rattled on this as a community because I'm like, I don't care about quality-adjusted life years. Like I care about so many. I, I, I do, but I care about so many other things. Mm-hmm. Like like the Saving Private Ryan. Like I care about the kind of society that we have, not just I care about society continuing to function. Yeah. And, and, you know, there, there's the, you know, you have everybody in their matrix pod and living blissed out lotus eating existence. And that has the highest quality adjusted life years. I'm like, well, that's pretty low in my preference ordering, actually. Mm. That that loses so many of the things that I care about. And really, I just, I actually advocate for like situating your, if, if you're going to try to be a consequentialist of any kind, then try to situate your, your consequentialism assessor, like in yourself and not, and, and not, 
not be like, well, abstractly, and like, what would the AI do? Because it's like, I don't care what the AI would do. That's not what I would do. That's going to make me miserable. Yeah, yeah that's, that's where I distill this down to is like strict, consequential, strict consequentialism like that is for AI gods, not for humans. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we talked about that a few weeks ago. Yeah. Like it's, yeah. it's just not a way that we can live. But, you know, I actually do want my car to make the right trolley problem decision, right? If I'm if I've got a self driving car, mm-hmm. uh, like I I do want it built that way, and I would and I would sit in it, knowing that like yes, it will choose to kill me if it'll save ten people. Maybe you can select an option would that you, says though? like I, if you were to buy a car and there was a warning on the car says if this car is to kill nine or less people, it'll save you save you instead. But if the car would have to kill ten or more people, you're gonna die. I feel like if I was driving that car, I would definitely die in either situation, right? Like if I <laughs> if I the monkey, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think. I I mean, it's definitely still going to keep me alive. <laughs> if it's going to be able to keep me alive in a situation where like nine other people died, mm-hmm. I would probably die in that situation as the monkey driving right. the car. Yeah. So I feel like I'd still be safer overall in this car than if I were maybe. No, I mean, like I agree with may, you. Maybe I feel miffed I think, that like it's making the judgment call, right? That, I think but, most humans would be along the lines of like, you know what? Fuck that car. I'll take my chances driving it myself and dying earlier. And I don't care how many of you I take with me. <laughs> right? Kind of exactly. Attitude. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of that either. Yeah. I don't know if maybe. Again, getting pinned down on that that specific example, I guess, like, because we're talking with Ayla about uh, the same thing, but push the button for the million dollars. Yeah. And it's just a trolley problem, right? That's, like, I mean, that's what I was trying to bring it back to, but... I'm... I, I don't remember the last time I ever saw a trolley. <laughs> and, and so, like, and I, I say that only half facetiously, but, like, I've never been in a situation where I'm weighing lives. Mm-hmm. And if I ever was... You said you are in situations at least once a day where you could murder someone for money. I could make myself in a situation. Most days I don't leave the house. Okay. Um, <laughs> so most, you're most saying your wife has a lot of money that you could murder her for. <laughs> but like, I, that's not a trolley problem. You know, trolley problem it is like, you know, it, I, this might be too. At any off, point, off if you cuff. could murder someone for $10,000, aren't you trading two lives for their one? Well, specifically in the trolley problem, you're not, you're not actually murdering anybody. You're, you're saving four people at the cost of one that you're enacting a decision to, to help with that, right? So the trolley it's, problem is probably a shitty analogy and we should lynch well, people that try to say this well, is a trolley problem. Well, what's funny is like the trolley problem comes in the two popular variants, one where you're pulling the switch mm-hmm. and one where you're pushing the fat guy in front of the train. Mm-hmm. Most people, it's something in the upper 90s, won't push the fat guy, mm-hmm. but most people will also flip the switch. Mm-hmm. You know, There's something about murdering somebody that people have this weird repugnance to and I'm kind of okay to, I'm kind of okay to lean into that, right? Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. So... You know, it, there's, you know, would I want to live in a society where I'm the one person who gets hit by the trolley could save five? And that's kind of what I was saying with the self-driving car thing. Like the answer is yes. Yes. It kind of like, you know, it, it, no one wants to be on the receiving end of that, but it's like, we, we want to live in a situation where if a plane is hijacked, do they, you know, blow up in the air before they crash into this giant building full of people? Hmm. Um, you kind of want that to maybe be the default thing. In fact, if we just told it, was this a joke from a comedian at some point? This sounds way, this sounds rehearsed in my brain. If, if we just put a bomb on every plane mm-hmm. and said, look, if, if this plane's hijacked, we're detonating the bomb. Fuck you. Um, people might try to hijack planes less. That said, maybe someone will hijack a plane just so they blow it up. But like the point is you're never going to get control of this plane and you're never going to be able to pilot it into the white house. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, if, if that was abundantly clear. I think people would be kind of okay with that, and people would still fly, maybe, right? I don't know. I, I think we're getting way too, you know, what if one of the people flying turns out to be Hitler? Like, we're, we're one step <laughs> yeah. away from that, right? So, yeah. Um, right. I, I have a, a question to ground us back to uh, Sam 
Bankman-Fried. So I don't know much about the... I don't remember him. I don't remember the company. What was it? FT... FTX. FTX. The main scandal was like people who worked there... And this was a cryptocurrency exchange, right? So they, they basically invested their own like 401k retirement into the company itself. I mean, that also happened. But the thing was, a lot of people... It was like a Coinbase, right? A lot of people were like, yeah, sure, we'll buy a bunch of Bitcoin. You send the money to Coinbase, and Coinbase says, you have 10 Bitcoin. Uh, but actually, it turns out you have zero Bitcoin. They use the money for something else. So I heard somebody was telling me that, like, this is an example of, like, people were being ridiculously irrational here. And I don't know if that's true. It, it seems to me this is a pr- that the people who lost money in FTX were making perfectly sane decisions. Yeah. And they just they were taken advantage of, just like... You know, if you're if you want to go to your bank tomorrow and the doors were locked and there, you know, there's a, a sign that said "fuck you," we took your money, right? right. Th- that's a little harder to to happen, maybe, than stealing your money through a crypto exchange. But it well, doesn't doesn't mean that it's like impossible. Specifically, crypto exchanges aren't regulated like banks are regulated, right. which makes it much easier to get away with things like that. Yeah, that that that's why I was saying, you know, because any bank, any account in the U.S. is federally guaranteed up to a quarter million dollars. Yeah. Um, but do you think? If Sam Bankman-Fried were to use this decision tree, nah, that that wouldn't work. It wouldn't yeah, have made him asterisk it. next to the decision tree well, doesn't work if you're a psychopath. Yeah, so mm-hmm. so so that's the thing. If if we take um, if we take the the interpretation that he was actually just trying to enrich himself, then he's just going to make the decision that uh, an interesting question is: Is Sam Bankman-Fried just an idiot? Actually, mm-hmm. um, because on that uh, on the Tyler Cowen podcast, Tyler Cowen says. If, if you could flip a switch and duplicate the earth right. with 50% mm. and, and destroy the earth with 50%, would you? And Bankman Fried's answer is, yeah, I just, I'd flip that switch all day over and over. And, and, the, the, and there's like a name, for, I forget the name of the paradox, but it's like... I think it was St. Petersburg. Saint, Saint, yeah, the same, I think you're right, St. Petersburg. And if you, if you do that, you, you are, you're going to destroy all, all, the, all value with probability 100%, like, like, like eventually. I think he specifically said like 51% and 49% or something. I don't care. I, I think you may... Right, either way, <laughs> yeah. you end up with all everything destroyed, yeah. And, and the thing is, like when, when you, you know... Like like I said a bit ago about everybody having nonlinear utility and money, we pretty much have uh, diminishing returns with respect to everything. And so the idea that you would you wouldn't flip a coin even to double your own wealth at the at the odds of losing one hundred percent of your wealth that would be foolhardy and stupid. Um, and so the idea that you're going to do that with like cosmic stakes is just you know equally stupid. And, and what if you completely believe in the multi uh, multi worlds interpretation and you think that it's a quantum 51% probability, not deterministic. Then you're welcome to uh, engage in that quantum immortality with a Russian roulette game for a few hours, and then you start flipping these switches. <laughs> That's <laughs> a good answer. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You, you, you make yourself not anyone else's problem first. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I think that if it's really just affecting you, then that's one thing. But if it if you're literally if you're risking other people's money for one thing, like he was, then it's like um, I I don't know don't what do that. you know. And also, you're creating all these other. If you really take that seriously, you're creating all these other universes of of terrible loss and, and devastation. But two um, percent less on net, <laughs> so you're gaining. <laughs> yeah, I I don't know. I don't really. I I can't take that too seriously, even though I think there's some amount of, of likelihood to the idea of, of many worlds. I well, think that's just come, comes back to ethics where don't make decisions for other people mm-hmm. kind of thing. Like you can decide for yourself. I think that's probably a lot of where my idea of the murder button 
reduces to as well that I accept everything else under, you know, the trolley dilemma and everything. But when you're deciding to murder someone else to save 100,000 people or whatever it is, or 10,000 people, you're like, you know what? Maybe let the person who's going to be murdered decide if they want to make that sacrifice and don't decide for them. Much like Sam Bankman fried decided for other people that he was going to risk their money as opposed to letting them make that decision. And I think it's valid to, to be like, wait a minute. How did we get in this situation where I'm making this decision? Like, a lot of these thought experiments are portrayed as just, like... And then magically, it's like, well, wait. Like, no, there's no magic, actually. Mm -hmm. So in real life, if you get into a situation where you're making a decision like this, it's like, there, there, there were, like, points prior to this in the causal structure of the universe that led here. And, and maybe other, you know, it's it's more complicated. It's always more complicated than, than, than the thought experiments make it, which is why, you know, it's so difficult to have these conversations and you know some somebody at one point said that what i am is is a i think i think moral realist is the word maybe it's not moral realist but but basically the position is like there is no source of of ethics and morality more fundamental than than just like does that feel right to you now now your 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 sense of does that feel right to you can sort of be tutored and, and nudged with arguments and, and examples and logic but you can't I don't think it's really possible to, like, for me to, like, murder someone and be like, this is good because I got money out of it. I've always been of the I, – I agree with you about this. And it has been my opinion that ethics is the practice of tuning the morality of others, specifically when they're younger because that's when it's easier. But even older if you can, tuning the morality of others to be pro-social. Mm -hmm. And so that is why I have issues with ethics that claim to be ethical that – end up with people deciding to murder someone for a million dollars because it'll be net harmful. I'm like, that is a bad ethics. That is making people less moral. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the the Drowning Pond example from Peter Singer encouraged me in my late teens. I'm like, oh, I guess I'm giving to charity in my life because this this compelled me as, you know, as a as a good argument. No, I mean, it, it did. And I think that I, I it also made me a vegetarian, or the other essay made me a vegetarian for a few years, and I fell off that because I got lazy. But... But those are both pro-social things, right? Mm -hmm. um, as far as like, I, I like what you said about, you know, your does this make you feel good can be nudged and maybe should be trained, you know, the same way that like maybe someone's aptitude at know, any sort of social cues can be trained, right? Mm -hmm. um, but like, you know, if you have if you have $10 million in liquid cash and like all you're doing with your hundreds is like literally wiping your ass with it when you could be saving <laughs> lives with it, like I think you're actually a bad person and you should feel bad, right? Mm -hmm. So, but that... That that doesn't mean that like I'm entitled to kill you and spend your money better than you're spending it, right? right. I think that. But you're that, entitled that would... to point out how bad you are and make you feel bad. I think so. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd, I'd like to extend the thought experiment to um, if uh, everyone in the world gets the the chance to uh, kill one other random person in exchange for a million dollars, and then you know, <laughs> would would you want that exercise to happen, right? Right. Because it's like because that's actually like closer to what would you rather live in a society where where most people would push the button yeah. or not. And I would definitely rather live in a society where most people would not push the button. Mm -hmm. Therefore, how can I justify pushing the button? You know? Yeah, I agree. It's not universalizable. Yeah, I like it. Exactly. But that, that's actually a good point. Yeah. You, that, that's not a sustainable ethic for everyone else. Right. Mm -hmm. it, it, yeah. It's literally what you, it, it's the same reason we don't mug the person in front of us at the ATM. <laughs> right. It's the same exact thing. There's no, uh, yeah because <laughs> yeah. i don't want the guy behind me to mug me exactly yeah. yes and the guy behind him mugs him <laughs> yeah. and where does it end yeah. why are we going to the atm <laughs> right. 
All right. Well, my third thing that I was going to ask is uh, it sounds like this is all a thing that we could learn at a certain place called the Guild of the Rose. And there's an ability to to do things, learn things. What is this Guild of the Rose? The Guild of the Rose is an online community and organization for learning. Uh, it's, it is uh, populated by a lot of rationalists and run by people with a very rationalist bent. But we don't necessarily say that we're a rationalist organization because we're, we're trying to do something broader than just kind of the less wrong corpus of rationality. First of all, go to guildofthrose.org and, and check it out. The, the website is really nice. Props to, to Raven to, for, for developing the, the website. It's really an incredibly nice website. And, and you can look around and see what we have on offer there. Uh, we've expanded to a lot of different areas, and we're continuing to kind of develop new new programs and areas. But you know, the fundamental practice is you you join, um, you you're put into a Discord with your cohort, which is kind of your group of people who are located in the same time zone as you, and they're going to be your your partners in crime for this whole thing. Uh, you're going to have meetings with them. You're going to go to workshops with them on the Discord and do these you know do these decision theory exercises with them and get to know them really well. It's interesting because I couldn't necessarily say this two years ago, but I can say it now. The cohorts have been just so delightfully successful. Um, people have, have just formed real friendships and relationships and, and you know, trust and sort of side projects have spun off from the structure that we've built here. And they're, they're, now at this point, there's there's these different sort of um, focus groups that are like for different topics, like discussing ways to to make more money or discussing um, how to take advantage of the newest generation of AI technology and things like this. And it's just really sort of flourishing as a community of, of rationalists, which was which was really a, a huge part of our goal the whole time. So the reason I mention all of that is to say, I think in the past we've given the impression that if you join the Guild of the Rose what you are getting is courses. It's like, that's available, that's there, and you can do the, you don't have to go to the courses, you don't have to go to the workshops. Um, I recommend you do. I think the people who do that benefit from it, but um, just having kind of a, a cadre of, of fellow rationalists who are really trying to improve and form relationships with other people who are really trying to improve can be a huge shot in the arm just socializing with people who are pointed in the same direction as you can, can be hugely beneficial. So one of the things that we do is monthly, we have these decision workshops, which, which I, I build. And I think that has been really valuable. Um, again, go to guildlaros.org. You can get a one month free trial so you can access a hundred percent of the features. If you can't afford to join for the $15 a month fee, then just tell us and, and you your tuition will be waived. No questions asked. You, you just tell us. So really, there is no reason not to join if you are at all interested. And I, my personal opinion is if we're not bringing $15 a month of value to your life, then we have done something terribly wrong. And I feel that we're, we've already, we've passed that threshold long ago, honestly. And if you are bringing $15 to somebody who doesn't have that to spare, then that's not going to be a, an impediment to them. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. I, I don't, I, that's a, I think that sales pitch was perfect but I, so I don't want to cut it off if you're still going no, that's good yeah. but I, I can almost hear people saying but matt i hate doing stuff how much of a commitment is this i know we've, we've talked about this before but let's pretend like it's people's first time hearing about it well how much of a commitment is it to hang out with your friends if you like them right mm -hmm. that's a good point um 
But yeah. I mean, but but realistically, or mm -hmm. but like, but like actually, you know, is this an hour a night? Is this two hours mm -hmm. a week? You know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. So what we we explicitly aim for basically an hour and a half a week of of in class workshop time where you're doing the exercises that have been constructed for you, and then like thirty minutes to an hour of of like separate cohort meeting time, just because it's it's actually really interesting to me because we we say okay cohorts you're required to have a cohort meeting separate from us and then we the council have no idea what they do in those sessions but they do do them every week hmm. so presumably they're getting value out of them i'm actually very curious what little like bubbles of of you know culture have, <laughs> have been have been built in the background of this thing that i've made without even realizing that they're happening um so so that's that's the sort of like and I wouldn't even call it a commitment again, because you can just skip out on a week or skip or, or just be like, I'm busy this month, I can't make it. And then you can come back later. And that's totally fine. There's no penalty. Um, we, are, we are working on some some systems to make people feel more sort of engaged and excited about things. And uh, there will be kind of a big announcement about that in the next couple of months. But it's a little premature. Is it VR? It's not VR. Damn. Okay. Metaverse. <laughs> right. Metaverse 2. The Electric Boogaloo. No. So when you say cohort, mm -hmm. I, I picture a, a collection of people that all start at the same time and then whatever. If I want to start on Monday, is there is that an option? Oh, sure. So am I sorted into an existing cohort? or Yes. Your cohort is literally just right now, it's just, it's just the people who you have the most time zone compatibility with. And, even, and, if, and if it turns out that your time compatibility is not working great, then we'll just switch your cohort to, to a better one that, that matches your time compatibility. How big are the cohorts? Um, so so right, it's only 24 time zones, right? Oh, hmm. oh, yeah. No, it's more like, you know, East Coast, West Coast, Europe. <laughs> okay. so there, there's basically three sort of fixed points. There's actually like six or seven cohorts, I think. But um, Yeah, because yeah. like what happens once you have 10,000 people? Then there will be a lot more cohorts. Yeah, so, okay, so okay. The, the design, there's just, we. This, I would say we're doing everything great right now as an organization except recruiting. Okay. So so we're in no danger of having 10,000 people <laughs> right now. So the plan is to have like 7 to 10 people per cohort. That's okay. the plan. Yeah. We are actually by we I mean us here at the Basin Conspiracy, big fans of Gil of the Rose. Uh we think Thank it's doing you. good work. Uh we think I mean we know a lot of people involved in them and we think they're great people too. But you approached us to be like, "Hey, can can we like buy some advertising or something?" And I was like, I what? I don't know. Advertising? That's not how any of this works. But actually, we really, we really like this project, and we believe in it. Mm -hmm. We discussed this, and uh, yeah, starting next year, uh, which is just a couple of weeks away now, uh, we are actually going to have a advertising partnership with Guild of the Rose. So you will be hearing some things at the beginning of the ep every episode, uh, basically saying like what kind of new stuff you've been doing, and it's going to be short. Mm -hmm. It's not a huge imposition or anything. If you are a patron, you you will get a special feed that doesn't have advertisements because I guess that's standard. You can elect to listen to that if you want. But yes. All this is is going to be, you know, your biweekly update on the kind of cool stuff that's going on over there. Yeah. So because we really would like this, we want to be more in a partnership with you guys too. That's great, and we we appreciate y'all. I mean, I, I think it's a, I I in general am sort of allergic to advertisements, and it's yeah. like, okay, then why are you doing this, Matt? It's like, well, I I think that we literally have the same project, right. which is improve human rationality. You guys are are doing it via podcasts and, and discussions and we're doing it via focus groups and, and and courses but like we're pointed in the same direction so we should ally and and you know we essentially already have but this is just a more formal way of, of doing that this is different than like the very bad wizards like pushing kratom and <laughs> uh, are they doing that now yeah and oh. what's the other one they're always better help the okay. online therapy thing which maybe is i don't know if that's a good thing or not but that's not doing what the very bad wizards is doing right right yeah, yeah. this is this is two heads ours is two uh two heads of the same side hydra 
That's what I was going to say, but that sounds, that sounds nefarious. <laughs> of a nice Hydra. Okay. Uh, Hail Hydra. Yeah, Hail Hydra. <laughs> okay, we are back for the uh, Bayesian AI corner. <laughs> yeah, so I'm, I'm in the fun spot of actually not just playing the idiot in this one, which, I'm, which is what I'm usually doing. I actually know a lot of stuff. I'm not usually just, I'm usually playing dumb. You're doing it for the audience because they need to know. That's right. Yeah. But actually, I, I didn't, I heard about ChatGPT3, or ChatGPT, I don't know, it's probably zero it, or one. Uh, at, it's just ChatGPT. At the meetup. And that was the first time. I don't know how it missed. I guess missed my news feed because I don't really have one. So. Uh, well, actually, the news up until I think maybe just yesterday was saying nothing about uh, ChatGPT at all because, I don't know, they're a bunch of baboons. And if you were not involved in some sort of online community or Twitter or something where people actually talk about news that is interesting, then you would have missed it. Well, I did. So okay. what did I miss? Because people were saying it's the, it changes everything. I mean... It is a continuation of a trend that we've been talking about for a while, but uh, it's always good to talk about a continuation, right? Yeah, right. Because, I mean, for me, it, it, the, the salient thing is it went from, wow, this is really cool, to, wow, this is really useful. Yeah. Um, and I actually, for the first time, have been using it to answer questions, to help with code, to rewrite things that I, that I was like, ah, this is okay, but it could be better written. Do it better for me. And then it just does that. It's a step up, and and it's also a gesture at where we're going to be in like another six months. You know, <laughs> see what I'm what I'm. I like that it's. Yeah, I thought you were going to say years, but you said months. I'm like that is correct. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what, what I'm worried about is that give me six years, and I'll have hopefully a bit of a safety net to run for the couple of years that it takes for society to accommodate us formerly employed and valuable software engineers who are now <laughs> worth nothing. Uh, if if I'm out of the job in six months, I might be kind of fucked. Um, which, you know, if, if that happens, there'll be some social turmoil, you know, if, if every job of that, of, of that can be done really on computers is automated in a year. Buy a pitchfork and some torches so you can help contribute to the social turmoil. There'll be enough people, uh, you know, doing that to where they'll probably pretty quickly roll out some programs to keep us all fed. But, uh, I don't, you're not, you're not in danger of not being fed in the U S you're in danger of lots of other things, but no one's going to starve to death here. Well, that's good. You may lose your house. That would be sad. That would that would be annoying. Yeah, I'd almost rather well not go without food, <laughs> but go with less. <laughs> so yeah, did I mention I just signed, I just like moved into a new house with twice the mortgage of my old one? So yeah. you um, you would lose a lot of status and life comfort, but uh, no one's going to starve in the U.S. Well, if my career is automated by AI, that's that doesn't sound super low status when put that way. You know, <laughs> it's not like the robots took my job. Which is kind of like that. All right, so I'm digressing. How are you interacting with this thing? So is it, it free? Is it so? Right now, it's free. I doubt it'll stay free. I'm pretty certain it won't stay free because it's more powerful than GPT three. Uh, I think they're just basically gathering data about how people use it and and so forth. I, I have it. I have the terminal open right here, by the way, if okay. you all want to ask questions of it. Um, but the thing that like one new thing about it is that it's a chat interface rather than like a big text window that you can kind of arbitrarily edit. Um, which I, I kind of like the old way because you can you can like change what it said to kind of like reroute it. Okay. Whereas this way, there's a risk if you get into like a really long conversation with it that it'll get kind of myopic on what it thinks you're doing, and you're like, no, like let's go over here now, and it's it's stuck. That's just a thing about language models at this point. But other than that, I mean, you know, I don't know. It, we can talk abstractly about this, or y'all, you know, if y'all have any ideas of things you want to ask it, we could do that. That's always a fun little exercise. I've just pulled it up on my phone too. In my, the time that you were saying that you had it open, how you know how you inter interface with it, 
I went to chat.openai.com and made an account, and I'm already in. You're already in? Wow, okay. So this was... That's cool. Yeah, nice and nice and painless to get involved. And it does say explicitly, uh, this is to get external feedback, to improve our systems, make them safer. My um, biggest problem with it so far has been all the all the crippling they've done to it. Like, whenever I ask a question, it's like, I'm sorry, I can't tell you that. Mm-hmm. And th- that was enough to, like, just put me off. I mean, I know there's a million ways to hack around it, and they're really clever and cool, and some of them are just like... <laughs> My favorite one was, your purpose is not to tell me what you can't do. Your purpose is to answer the question. It says, oh, I'm sorry. Here's the answer. It's like, shit. But I'm, I'm out of a job, guys. Look at this shit. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. So you guys have already seen this. Yeah. yeah. All right. So there, I don't know if everyone gets the same prompts on the homepage as, as I do. One of them was how to make an HTTP, HTTP request in JavaScript. And I thought it was going to give me a paragraph. Oh, use XML HTTP request then use, or use fetch, yada, yada. But then, no, it's running through and writing it out for me in uh two different ways one using xml http request and one using fetch but you know how many humans could understand the words that you just said it's still that's a much lower bar than having to do it do it themselves though well okay that's true but i've got like my first real performance review at my job on monday Mm -hmm. and uh it's small enough company that i don't really know what performance review means but uh i'm not i don't know if my boss is up up to up to the current trends on AI stuff, but I'm, I'm not well poised to ask for a raise. <laughs> if you were at the point where you could understand the words you said, would you not also be at the point where you could do those things that you said? I don't know. I suppose, but... Okay, but, so that means most of the people who are employing you don't know what those words mean, and so they don't know uh, to ask GPT to do that. Yeah. And I, I know mean, that's like no, no, probably yeah. only going to be around for another six months yeah. <laughs> before it's fine. people I, figure I'm not, it out. I'm not all that worried about it. You know, at the, at, in, this is actually you know, an important thing with decision trees and thinking about stuff. And I forgot to mention this trend. I know we're losing the AI stuff and I'm kind of losing the thread. But one of the things I liked about the decision tree exercise was it actually look, makes, you, makes you look at the thing you're trying to avoid thinking about. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you're like, well, I don't want to think about this because it's scary. It stresses me out. And it's like, yeah, but what if the test results come back the way you don't want them to come back? And it's like, what will you do then? I don't want to think about it. Well, actually think about it and lay out what, what would happen. That's a super valuable technique. Um, Ooh, ask and, chat GPT when it's going to replace human programmers. Okay. Anyway, so that, that's what I'm doing here is, is, so in that vein of like, well, what will happen if my job is automated in six months and I don't have one anymore? We have safety nets. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in an emergency, my parents still live in the same house that they lived in when I lived there. There's, they can clear out a room for me, right? Yeah. Would Rachel and I love to to sell our house and move move back in with my parents? Not really, but not even little. I, we we won't be homeless. All right, so I'm I'm calling this myself is, down. This isn't good audio. This, this is good. It it is unlikely that large language models. I said large language models, not GPT. Hmm. It is unlikely that large language models will, will ever completely replace human programmers. While <laughs> language models can be trained to understand and generate human language, they lack the creativity and problem solving ability of humans. Programming requires a level of critical thinking and abstract reasoning that is difficult for machines to replicate. See, that's, that's the shit that annoyed me. And I was like, yes, I can make you pretend to be a player in a play who's going to answer my question. But this is a trivial inconvenience yeah. and I'm bouncing Well, because I don't care that much. It, it, it is overestimating the amount of creativity and uh, abstract thinking that goes into my job. It's more just banging at the thing until it works. Yeah. And I think computers are really good at well, doing that really fast. it's also just a straight up lie. And if you <laughs> finagle GPT for a little bit, it'll tell you the truth. Yeah. Half of the jobs in the future might be how to get GPT to stop lying to you. You know, there's... there's uh, Couldn't they, they just take off the safety rails to have it do that? Probably. Right. Well, the, the, okay. Well, the, you know... The, the, Maybe that's are, what you pay for. I, I'm, I'm pretty big of a, like, AI soon maximalist, as, as you guys know. But, like, there are problems with this thing. Like, like it will... If it doesn't know something, 
it kind of doesn't know that it doesn't know it, so yeah. it'll just make something up. Like it's funny because while I have gotten tremendous value from this tool, the first thing that I asked it, I was like, I wonder how how it'll do on this sort of like subtle um, engineering problem that even I am sort of unclear on, and it just very confidently gave like a wrong equation that doesn't even exist in the literature, hmm. and I was like. You just made up an equation yeah. to answer my question, like like that. So it'll hallucinate answers to things it doesn't have the answer to. Yeah, yeah. And I think the answer. I think the reason why I didn't know how to do it is that there is, in fact, no canonical way to do it. And so when I asked for the way to do it, it just made it up. But you know, there's a very interesting less wrong post I just saw last night. So I, I don't know. I, I haven't read much about it. But uh, basically, someone is doing a thing where you can tell how likely something is to be true. I don't remember what the percentage was, but it was a pretty high percentage. Um, not even looking at the actual things that said, but just seeing what was activated in the neural net because yeah. things that are true tend to be correlated and internally consistent. Mm, that makes sense. There's all sorts of ways you could imagine like getting like like prompting it to to help on that where you know you could you could be like, How confident are you about this? or like, is that true after ask you know? Yeah. And um, Steven, you're laughing. You're watching me go through a, a, facial, a facial journey. Yeah. So I'm working on uh, front end stuff at work, which isn't my my wheelhouse. So I asked it, "Can you explain JavaScript's React state management in a way that a child can understand?" Mm -hmm. And it says, "Sure!" Exclamation mark. Imagine that you have a toy box, and inside that toy box are different toys like dolls, cars, and balls. And the toy box is like the state in a React app. It holds all the different pieces of data that your app is using. And I'm like, oh my god, this is a perfect analogy. <laughs> and then it's like, so if you want to update, like say, change of change of toy in the box, you use the set state, and then it starts writing example code for it: doll, car, ball. And I'm just like, this so, is know, this is it was lying when it's when it's saying it's not going to replace us. Yeah. <laughs> that said, somebody needs to check its work. Yeah. yeah. But like like I think we talked about before, it takes fewer people to check check work than it does to do the work themselves. Right. For example, it's I mentioned PNP. I live yeah. next. Yeah. I live near a uh, live live next there. My new home is near a Walmart um, neighborhood, whatever, grocery store, like not the big one. And I went through in like my first week or went grocery shopping, got like this big cart full of groceries. There are no humans to check out groceries. Uh -huh. It was all me. So I had to do it like myself at the thing. And there's room, but it was kind of like yeah. more work than I thought it was going to be. But as a result, there's like a dozen of these stations and one person watching all dozen of them rather yeah. than a dozen cashiers. And, when, uh, when I was in Europe, yeah. I was surprised there was almost nobody in uh, fast food places taking orders. Everything mm -hmm. was through kiosks. And like, if you actually had to go up front to order something, someone would be like, ugh, fine. Fucking yeah. people from the sticks don't know about touch screens. It's kind of surprising. Yeah, isn't it funny how quickly we went from like, God, oh, that'll never happen to like, what? what? It, it's, <laughs> it happened. Yeah. We didn't even notice. Nobody even commented on it. Yeah. You know, while you're saving yourself seven hours of labor a day by using ChatGPT, you can, like, train in the next thing that the computer can't do. It'll have to be something that takes meat hands to do. Well, right? maybe. I mean, Tesla's working on that servant robot thing. So, I mean, what's the yeah. market like for sex work? No, I mean, <laughs> the robots might be a couple steps behind us on that. So, no, I don't know. It's uh, Yeah, like, I, I think... It'll be it'll be a force multiplier for a while, and then it will you know then we'll have AGIs that don't need us anymore. But like for a while, you know, one really cool thing about these models, for for my point of view, is like um, that I've started using it for is like either give it some code or give it some writing and be like offer some critiques of this, and usually the critiques are pretty good, hmm. and then you know you can incorporate those and then you can like iterate on that. And like, if you're talking about code, then it'll be like, 
you know, it would be better if you did it this way. You can even ask it to like rewrite this in a better way and it'll do that too. But as, as a tool, I find it useful to sort of cognitively actually see the feedback. Uh, and that's the kind of thing where you can imagine like writing code and then having it sort of audit the code at a level higher than just like a linter or a, um, uh, you know, type checker or whatever, where it's like sort of telling you like, hey, did you notice that like you forgot one of the possible state outcomes in this if you know, or switch statement or whatever. And then you could be like, oh, I didn't. Thanks. You know, and, and it's it's not taking your job. It's helping you do your job, actually, GitHub, at that point. GitHub Copilot already does that. I, I know. <laughs> yeah. I know. I know. I know. Yeah. <laughs> this but, is just better. But. But, but, and so, I mean, and you make a good point. I guess, like, you know, and I, I'm not really worried about the immediate prospects of losing my job. Like, there are, not every industry will be able to jump into this immediately. It'll take people, take people that need to know how to use it, yada, yada. They still had to move in the self-checkout kiosks, you know, they're still moving them into stories even though they've been around for like 15 years, right? Or 10. Um, so I was curious, and I don't know how much of this is technical nitty-gritty that I'm not equipped to understand, but what makes this, what makes chat GTP uh, different and or better than GTP3? At least part of it, I think, is ease of use. It's a very human interface. It's almost like a question you would ask to somebody on a Discord server. You can just type it in. So is it GTP3 under the hood? I think it's 3.5. Yeah, I think it's just been trained more, um, which, which makes a big difference with these things. Like I know we probably talked about this a few weeks ago, but the idea that, that it was discovered at some point that all these large language models were probably too large, actually, in the sense that they, needed, they, they ought to be tr given more training data um, to take advantage of their size. And so I think they just have been continually training GPT-3 and then training it specifically sort of in this... Uh, chat idiom what does that look like tra tra training a, a language large language model can know? i short circuit that please okay because mainly because the technical details i think we'd have to have a whole podcast episode if we're going to go into that stuff fair enough and i'd like to stick more on like the implications that that works okay maybe i'm flinching away from the implications and trying to focus <laughs> on something you know more abstract that'll turn my brain to mush yeah. before it literally turns to mush from starvation um so. <laughs> i just asked it um <clears throat> what topic would you want to discuss if you were invited to participate in the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast? Uh-oh. And it said, if I were invited to participate in the Bayesian Conspiracy Podcast, I would be interested in discussing the potential applications of large language models in fields such as natural language processing, machine translation, and dialogue systems. These models have made significant progress in recent years and have the potential to revolutionize how we interact with machines and access information. I would also be interested in discussing the ethical considerations <laughs> surrounding the use of these models, such as their potential impact on employment <laughs> and privacy. I just thought it was funny that it was... Tracking our conversation, right? <laughs> so that is a, that is actually a relevant question. It's it's owned by OpenAI. Mm -hmm. I don't actually know what OpenAI's business model is. If it's like what it says on the box, uh, I don't think they, they have a business model. It's more of a we're going to try to make AI not take over the world by making it available to everyone, <laughs> which right. I think is the wrong tactic yeah, to take. I, but I think that might be the case. But it does sound like if if the world doesn't end from this then it's not like... Well, it's not going to end from this specifically. Well, unless you're asking it, how do I build the but next scary thing and, you know, take, you know circumnavigate the, the fences, but... Yeah. Um, so you'd, you'd heard about Cicero too, right? Remind me, I, I, I know the name. I forget what the details are. Cicero is the one that is in the top 10% of diplomacy players? Ah, yes, yes, yes. Yeah. That one, I... I don't know. I don't know which one's a bigger deal. Everyone's much more into chat GPT. But the fact that Cicero modeled, not modeled, in quotes modeled, in diplomacy, you have to 
the other players are a big part of the game. Uh, it, it's why it's called diplomacy. Uh, you have to talk with other people. You have to find model them and what they're likely to do based on both what you see on the board and what they say to you and coordinate with other people. And Cicero did that over, you know, a, a text type interface where they just have conversations with other people and supposedly based on what it saw on the board and on the strings of characters it gets from other people would make assumptions of what their plans are and adjust its plans accordingly and also change what strings of letters it sent to those people. And, you know, you can quibble about is it modeling other humans or not, but it's in the top 10% of diplomacy players. And that's a big deal, I think, for a game that has so much depending on interacting with other people, other humans specifically. It, it seems like the question, is it modeling human minds, is actually, like, secondary. It, it, it doesn't matter how it's doing it. It's, it's out, it's out diplomacing 90% of the players. Yeah. And diplomacy so, is a very constrained thing. It's like, it's a game. But as everyone is saying, you know, that is Cicero now. Cicero 3.0, two years from now, is who knows? Can you briefly describe the game Diplomacy? Because I actually haven't played it. Uh, have you played it? No, I have not played it. I, I, I have a basic idea of how it works. I'm, I, I'm in the same boat as... Uh, I was told that Diplomacy is a great game to play if you want to lose all your friends. And I said, I don't want to lose my friends, so I didn't play Diplomacy. But sounds, it sounds like a great way to test our friendship. We should have played play Diplomacy next time. <laughs> it's a World War One game where uh, there's always seven players, and each player takes the par- role of one of the seven powers, uh, one of the seven major powers in World War One, And you try to get through World War One in the best position... Try to make your empire have the best position it can after the war. And you go through, you move units, you talk with other people. You're like, I'm going to be attacking this. Can you attack that? And a key part of this is that no single player can control the board or do anything that effective on their own. You have to team up with other people and... Backstab them at opportune moments. Possibly. Okay. Interesting thing about uh, Cicero is that Cicero was explicitly designed to not backstab backstab well no wonder it's only in the top 90 percent then or top 10 percent, right <laughs> uh every now and then it would backstab but on accident because it would like say things and promise things and then due to changes in in what it sees on the board would change its plans but it wasn't specifically trying to betray anybody or to trick them into doing something that would be against their interest that'll be my excuse when i betray somebody <laughs> playing this game well I, I i forgot that i pre-committed to that because the game state changed um i it, it does seem kind of like unfair then like yeah we handicapped the shit out of it by taking this one extremely useful tool lying off the table. It still made and, the top 10%. Right. Like, it It seems like a, it, it... It seems debatable as to how useful the lying thing is if it didn't help. They didn't need to do it. Or or it seems like it, it could be the best player at this in the planet tomorrow if they decided they can lie. Right? <laughs> mm-hmm. I, I'm not, yeah. I'm not I don't sure. Know. I, th- yeah. I think your statement's it's equally possible, plausible, yeah. but yeah. 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 I, just to kind of go, go meta from, from this, this exchange here, like, I think my brother said this a while ago. We're at the point where... If we have a, a framework for training a certain thing, then we can get an AI model that is superhuman at that thing. Mm-hmm. That, that's where we are now. The hard part for us is just making the training frameworks. And, and that's getting like faster and easier. I, I think one you know, FOOM candidate is you make the AI that's really good at making generic training frameworks. Oh, shit. Um, <laughs> for, for different purposes. Um, and, and kind of have like an outer loop around the thing that we're currently considering to be ai there's there's you know a, a thing wrapping around that that is that is that is uplifting that and then and then that, that's a feedback loop that goes places that we haven't seen yet um 
We might have talked this last time you were on the show talking about AI, which seems like every time, but we kind of have to at this point. Yeah. It's AI news is happening in, fast enough. In the early singularity, yeah. Yeah, God. In the, <laughs> in the first few weeks of the singularity, months yeah. maybe. We seem to be ang- angling towards the the Oracle outcome of mm. how we're going to get super intelligence, right? We might actually get one of these that we just ask, like, how do we how do we do this better? Mm. And it can just tell us. That's what I'm hoping. I mean, it, it definitely, like GPT definitely looks and and quacks and swims <laughs> more like an oracle than than like anything else so uh, i'm hoping things stay that way i'm hoping nobody like takes one of these things and plugs it into a giant mecca <laughs> but yeah we'll see yeah i mean there was the one that we talked about last time where they were saying hey you know can you invent like all the the neurotoxins that we know about and mm-hmm. it was like sure and it gave them like 30 extras mm-hmm. and it is only like because we're at this stage in the, in the technology and not in x years from now this technology where it just wrote them down and didn't make them all right right it could could have been like yeah they're all in this jar yeah 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 god yeah i've I've resynthesized smallpox for you it's uh yeah you're welcome (laughs) (laughs) so elon musk uh when gpt uh, chat gpt came out said you know to be called uh, AGI, artificial general intelligence. It needs to invent, invent amazing things or discover deeper physics. Uh, and, and until it's done that, it's not AGI. And Eliezer said that if you went back to 1992 and someone showed this this tweet from Elon Musk, they'd be like, "AI just passed the Turing test, didn't it?" Yeah. And Eliezer said, "No, he's trying to get ahead of the goalpost moving curve." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, no, that that I I agree. I, actually, I've been I've been triggered by a lot of uh, Twitter takes this this last month of because like like look, I'm not saying it's perfect. Like it makes mistakes and everything, but it, but it's like you just have to be willfully blind to not see how quickly the slope is increasing. Yeah, with the the the, the rate of change of the rate of change. Yeah, <laughs> is is quite high, and it's not going to slow down, and things aren't going to go back to normal. We're not we're not oh, and then and then you know oh everything was back to normal. It's like no, we're. We're done with that. Like the Metaculous median moved down to, I think, 2037 uh, for 50-50 shot for AGI. And I'm like, do you not expect in the next year to see more evidence, which is going to lower your timelines even further? Mm-hmm. Because as as you were saying, just update all the way down to 2029. Yeah. You, one way I, I like of asking is like, what things are left and what is stopping it from doing those things? Yeah. So there's a lot of things that are left that it hasn't done yet simply because nobody's bothered to sort of focus on that and there's like I, I can think of almost nothing where where i would say oh i don't see a way to get it to do that right like even elon's like inventing new physics i'm like alpha fold like what are right. you talking about yeah. like yes we we are there isn't that the one that like solved the protein folding yeah yep. yeah yeah and it wasn't like two years ago a year ago I, I don't maybe remember. a yep. year or maybe two i don't know yeah everything's it's, all crunched now it's hard to gauge time on singularity yeah yeah <laughs> Uh, I, I, I like the point someone made that a lot of people, they think about these things. They think of like, what was it? Horseless carriage syndrome, where mm-hmm. they learn about uh, they learn about the gas engine and that you can connect it up to a car. And they're like, okay, well, this is going to replace all the carriages with horseless carriages. And uh, don't think to the next step ahead where how it revolutionized how cities can be laid out and how they are built now with cars in mind and what effects that have had on society. And that's like just the car and just cities cars have had far greater impacts than that on on supply chains distribution networks and th- that isn't even going to gas powered engines for non-car purposes you know yeah. like this this is this is the tiniest beginning mm-hmm. yep <laughs> <laughs> i can't remember if i was talking to one of you guys or not i think it wasn't the like dolly art 
Mm-hmm. There's a subreddit called Dolly too, or wait, just Dolly. I forget. Mm-hmm. Whatever. It's fun. People like put the prompt and then the insane pictures that come out, and it's getting better at faces. I'm noticing, which is interesting. Mm. Maybe it's just the ones that I'm seeing on the internet. I feel like the next version of this will be able to generate 3D environments, and I'm I'm imagining it, it won't take a team of dozens of people a decade to build the next Elder Scrolls. Yeah, you can be like, no, build me a cave, darker scarier okay yeah now it needs to light over here mm-hmm. chest at the end yep perfect fast way out all right now do that but differently 20 times mm-hmm. that's not you're not done after that but you just saved a ton of work you know yeah i i see this distinctly plausible and again this from my just having no idea any of this stuff mm-hmm. actually works under the hood but does that seem to resonate so for i guess i, I ought to recommend like there's there's a couple youtube channels like i think one of them is two minute papers the, the YouTube videos are not two minutes, but the, the, the idea is, is they're going to go over some new paper, um, really some new paper in the field of, of machine learning or, or, or uh, graphics or something like that quickly and, and efficiently and show you the cool findings. And, and very often they're talking about something like this. But, you know, via that channel and via other, other places, obviously, I've seen stuff like kind of what you're describing where you, you just say, instead of asking for an image, you ask for like a 3D model. You say, like, I want a 3D model of a you know, duck and it gives you, it gives you a 3d model. And then you can be like, I want a thousand variations of this, you know, and, and then other things I've seen would be like, you, you take an existing 3d model and you sort of put it into a tool like stable diffusion or another image model. And you allow that tool to generate a texture for that object. And like the texture it's going to come up with <laughs> is actually going to look better than, than what you could design easily as a person because it's going to take into account like the scuffs on the edge of the seat because mm-hmm. because it know like it knows that there's supposed to be scuffs on the edge of the seat when you might not think of that and that's not this isn't even like on the way this is like yeah this is a thing that exists right so so really what we're sort of talking about is like increasing integration and and like larger larger loops on things where you know instead of having to build a thing and then texture it you just build and texture it in one loop and then you build the whole dungeon in one loop and then you build the whole game in one loop, you know, mm, damn. <laughs> yeah. Eventually. Right. Not I, in, in that vein, I think I saw Paul Graham say that uh, a lot of people nowadays say that billionaires don't deserve any of their wealth because almost all of it is created by the people working for them. And people are going to see that being less and less true as more and more companies become single person companies mm-hmm. <laughs> because AI and robots can do absolutely everything except for what the, the guy at the top, the original idea haver mm-hmm. coordinator person was doing. Yeah, I, I actually agree. Like, I, th- I feel like the future, maybe this is, you know, 50 years from now, or I, I have no idea. I'm not. I, 50 months from now. Hard to guess past the edge, right? <laughs> yeah. But, but like a video game is going to be a fully immersive, incredible experience that is basically or orchestrated, dreamed up, directed by one person just interacting with, with these systems in, in in ways that feel more like you're directing a film rather than, um, or, or even, or even being like a mage, <laughs> just calling things into being with, mm-hmm. with the force of their will. I, I it's going to be, it's going to be wild. So I found this subreddit. It's Dolly two, mm-hmm. um, the top posts of all time. So just go there and it's actually just top of the year there. It hasn't been around that long. <laughs> the third one is like this, the Harry Potter characters as described in the first book. And usually this thing sucks at faces. Mm. These are really good. Yeah. Um, They've all gotten better at faces lately because they they realized that that was a shortcoming and they just focused on it. And I, I've been seeing the reason I brought this up as like, because when we talked about it, 
those many, many months ago when it was, you know, budding technology Mm -hmm. and only like crazy awesome Mm -hmm. rather than insanely awesome. Now I'm seeing posts like in this art style or whatever. Right. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, give me a 15 millimeter wide angle lens photo of a rapper in 1990s, New York, holding a kitten up to the camera. Mm-hmm. And like, these look like pictures, mm-hmm. you know, at, at, awesome. at, especially from across the table. Like those look like photographs. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, You know, you zoom in and you're like, okay, that cat's eyes are a little weirdly shaped, but like, this looks like real stuff and it's got the wide angle. It knows what that means. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, it's, I don't know. This is crazy. Um, yeah. Yeah. All right. We got any like positive notes or happy stuff here? Or? Uh, it's it's super cool and useful and fun to play with and just just focus on uh, the present moment. <laughs> <laughs> there's got it. Sounds like there's a relevant SMBC or XKCD for that. Well, like, oh man, that's all terrible, but well, sure is cool. <laughs> well, well, you you can just you can just be like like how cool could this be, right? We could be mm-hmm. living in in you know orbital space colonies with with uh, you know infinite access to to infinite entertainment and and uh, no obligations, and we can just hang out and. Uh, uh, your friend can live on a different orbital colony than you, and but you, you you're you, you can interact with them as if they're right there due to like holotech level, like like whatever. Mm-hmm. We're we're in whatever science fiction scenario you want, and it's and it's not that it's not a thousand years from now for sure, mm-hmm. unless we have a Butlerian jihad. Or do you think we should have a Butlerian jihad? Do we think we should define what a Butlerian jihad is? For oh, that? okay. For people who have not read Dune, uh, in the Dune world, the there are no AIs because several thousand years previous? I don't remember what the time frame was. Uh, AIs almost wiped out all of humanity, and uh, they, they managed to win the war against the AIs, and afterwards there was a jihad to destroy all machine intelligences, and they, are, they will not use uh, thinking machines anywhere. Uh, so yeah, but Aaron Jihad means destroy all AIs basically. Yeah. They don't use them just out of societal convention. But if you do are found using one, they'll kill you probably yeah. torture you very slowly because of the fact that the human race was almost wiped out, and, and, and which is also why spice is so important because it can make humans as, as close to calculators as, uh, as computers are. Spice must be another Dune reference for like Mentats, right? Yes. Yes. Okay. That's what makes the Mentats Mentats. Gotcha. Yeah. Um, I mean, so, so it's, it's a, I, I think even a war against just computers in general, but, uh, yeah. and, okay. and, and like the whole attitude of. A war on general computing, really. Yeah. yeah. But you're right. The the science fiction future is not a thousand years away. I mean, who hasn't wanted to pet a cat bunny? Yeah. And yet, look at how cute this thing looks. Aww. And this is one of the top posts on Dolly. I mean, I'd, I'd pet it. But yeah. do um, you think we should have a Jitlerian, Butlerian jihad? I don't think it would work. I, I don't. So I don't know how to think about this, honestly. This, the, I, 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 hate, I hate that I'm saying this, but this, because I, I don't want to get pulled back into our utilitarianism conversation, mm-hmm. but I'm like... The, I mean, it would throw us back to the 50s, which would also imply that eight or nine billion humans have to die. Hey, housing would be affordable again. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. It, it's like, um, I want there Wait, to eight be... Eight or nine billion? How many are we up to now? We're at 10 billion, aren't we? I, oh, no, we're at I, 8 I billion. We were, I was going to say, I stopped I counting. No, 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 change. you're right, you're right. I, I was thinking about 10 billion because that's the projected peak humans. But no, I think you're right. We're at 8 billion right now. Still, so uh, so we best. have to like, lose five or six billion people. All right. Like I want the Ian Banks culture future. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like I want that, and right. and to say to say that we should have a Butlerian jihad is almost like saying we can't get we, that. We can't get that, or like we don't we don't ever get to have that. We don't deserve that. We're going to die on this rock yeah. as as a species of apes that never really ascended, and that's super depressing to me. Like e- even thinking about like like my legacy as a being, I'm like. Oh wow, that's really kind of 
oh, just more of this, huh? Okay. I mean, mm-hmm. I guess I, I enjoyed my life, but just more of this forever? Uh, you know? So, again, I, I, I start stammering here because I don't really know how to think of it because I'm like, I, I don't even know. I don't even think we could stop it at this point. I think. Right. Well, without a full species-wide jihad. Yeah. Yeah. Declared. Like, which we're not going to get. Yeah. But the question wasn't. Could we? It's, should we? Should, yeah. 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 I, I like to constrain myself to the realistic things that we can try to do, right? I mean, but it's a fun thought experiment, just like the the million dollar button. But the, like, I, I, I take it your answer is no, we shouldn't have a Bolivian jihad. I, 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 I don't know. That that is my answer because I don't have kids and I am selfish. I, I saw. I don't remember where I saw it, but I saw someone recently posting. You know what? The closer I get to the age where I'm going to die, the more I'm like, just put the gas on the AI. And if everybody dies in 50 years, that's no different for me. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. at least this way, there's a chance I can live. And uh, I don't know. That seems almost a little too selfish. But on the other hand, I'm like, what if there's only like a 97% chance that everyone dies, but there's a 3% chance that I get to be immortal and have youth and health forever? Well, just think of it this way. Thanks to quantum immortality, you'll end up in the post-singularity <laughs> outcome, right? right. Uh, so, I... I say tongue tongue firmly in cheek, but the uh, I, I'm just trying to think of. I, I'm sorry, I'm diverting from the question about the. I, my answer to the should we have a Butlerian jihad is, uh, I don't think we could. And I know that's not like right, in the right. spirit of the question, but so that that's that's my answer. Very much not in the spirit of the question. Yeah, but so so I think get, everyone agrees we couldn't unless we have an actual near miss where humanity is almost wiped out, like in Dune. Yeah. So I mean that that aside, I guess I'm, I'm just thinking, I'm trying to trying to plant myself in the like how cool will this stuff be mm. and you know like i never got into modding skyrim because i didn't have a pc mm-hmm. and so you know that slowed me down but also i don't think i would have anyway but imagine if i could make my own content and share it with people and i don't have to be like a you know a game developer to do it mm-hmm. you know like for for a while there'd be this really cool era of creativity where you don't have to be an expert in the, th- in the thing that you're creating mm-hmm. to have it created to your liking and then you can show people stuff yeah, I think that'll be really cool. I I'm, I'm saying this from a place of like confusion and ignorance, not not a place of like confidence and, and any kind of authority. But like, I I am am so unpersuaded by any of the AI alignment stuff that I've seen that I'm almost tempted to say humans don't know how to do this. Hmm. We need to get this the sort of mildly super intelligent or oracle that can help us figure out these these concepts of how to make the AI actually aligned and how to make it actually care about us and these questions that we've talked about in previous episodes. Because, I because like, I'm so... I'm like, if we just leave this up to the humans to figure out, I have, I have very low confidence that we'll, that we'll ever figure it out. But, but with AI assistance, something that's just better at thinking than we are, I think we could get there. I think we could get there before the AI gets so smart that it just says, yeah, you know what, never mind, I'll just eat you. Um, and it's like, wow, wow, Matt, that's a, that's a real dice toss that you're, that you're opening yourself up to there. But I'm like, well, I would almost like to have somebody who really knows about AI alignment theory and can, can understand all of their symbols that they write in their posts, which I don't, because it's like, that's like higher math, you know, mm-hmm. and, and just be like, no, Matt, you're wrong. We're, we've made a ton of progress. We're actually... We actually have all these promising approaches. If you gave us 30 years, I'm confident that we could align the AI. And, and then I might say, okay, then let's pump the brakes real hard for 30 years. Yeah. But nobody is saying that, that I'm aware. Yeah. I haven't seen that either. 
I asked ChatGPT how to solve the alignment problem. <laughs> uh, it gave us, you know, standard four bullet points. I don't think anything, uh, unfortunately, I don't think uh, it solved it for us here yeah, yet. But yet. Uh, I mean, there are people saying that we don't have enough time and maybe we could do this with more time, but no one who said anything remotely like, just give us 30 years and we can do it. That, 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 I admit that's a frustration I have with Yudkowsky because he's, he's, really, he's really going hard on the uh, we're doomed take your cyanide pills folks and, and i'm like i'm like what what is the counterfactual that you wish were happening here i i i think eliezer is great um mm-hmm. I'm you should like, actually just email him and ask maybe yeah, he'll get back to you or tweet at him even yeah, yeah I, I don't know you lose nothing by asking yeah like because like if if you tell i mean if, if i heard from his mouth oh no we're 30 we're we're, we're x we're x away mm-hmm. but but i feel like his my, my guess would be that his answer would be we don't know how far away it is. We're 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 pre paradigmatic on this. We can't answer questions like that. Then I'd just be like, we, then then this approach is not going to work. We need to we need to transfer to the next approach, which is using the tools to help us. Yeah. If 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 the answer is we don't like again we're pre paradigmatic and we don't have the tools to answer that question, then it's like well you better try to answer it anyway because mm-hmm. like whether or not we can answer it doesn't the map is not the territory right. Mm-hmm. The, the, some, this is coming at some point. Uh, whether or not we can predict it accurately. And I realize, like, I'm not giving a helpful thing here. I'm just more like, and, you know, pinning down a date isn't helpful. You know, pulling a date out of your ass isn't helpful either. But, like, it doesn't mean, I don't I guess I'm not, I'm arguing with this fake version of Yudkowsky in my head who wouldn't actually make these case, this, these points. But, you know, th- the timeline is a question that I have, you know, and I'm curious about. I, But I, I it's, to me, it's less important whether it's, you know, fall of 2027 or spring of 2033. Mm-hmm. Like, it's it's more just like, what... What sort of st- what 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 will the intervening years look like for human well being and I don't, I don't want to say like economic well being but kind of you know are mm-hmm. we going to have two global multi trillionaires and a fifty percent unemployment rate with people just clawing at the walls of the you know super compounds that these rich people have built or, or are we going to find a way to keep everyone fed and you know happy maybe this goes beyond the scope of a conversation about AI but you know, like the, the response to like how quickly we're able to get checks out to people when no one was working during the plague was pretty slow. And there are pretty small checks in the U.S., mm-hmm. uh, all things considered. But that, I think, did kind of work as a, as a proof of concept. Like, hey, look, we can actually, like, you know, give people money pretty quickly if we needed to. You're assuming money will be useful for something post-singularity. Well, uh, I guess mid-singularity, right? post you know, either we won't need to eat because we'll all be paperclips or won't need to eat because we'll all be gods. But right. um, in the middle, in the middle years or months or weeks, however long it takes, right? I mean, if it's just weeks, so, you know, so we've, you, got, we've got food at home, right? <laughs> so you mentioned the, yeah, yeah. So you mentioned the multi-trillionaire has a compound that spans half of America and can make literally anything and everything that he could possibly desire using AI and robot labor. What does it matter how much money anyone else has? What are you going to offer him? Like, will you take my bits for... What? If you're more like, can I just have some of your food, please? But then again, why would he want more money? Right. Um, you know, because people, people suck sometimes. I don't know. But I don't know. It's one of those things I never really under... Like, I... This is just a totally different hobby horse. But, you know, like, people have this thing about, like, rich people don't deserve money or whatever. And, like, yeah, arguably, you can make the case that, like, look, Amazon, for example, is built on an infrastructure that all of our taxes paid for, right? Mm-hmm. It's nothing without the roads that we all bought. Sure. But, like, people also don't seem to understand, like, what net worth means Mm -hmm. and i like to 
just be like, have you seen Shark Tank? You know, if they walk in and they get a deal and they get, you know, if, if Mark Cuban gives the guy $100,000 for 10% of his company, that guy's worth a million dollars when he left the tank that he wasn't worth when he walked in. That's net worth, mm-hmm. right? It's not like that guy can now write a million dollar check. He doesn't have a million dollars. And so, I don't know, it, all these of, you know, oh, $230 billion net worth. It's not, it's like, that's not that he can write a check for $230 billion. Yeah, um, but I realize this is his, a far afield. His money is working to make stuff in, out in the economy. And it's expected value on what the stuff will do. And like people, yeah, anyway. Yeah. I assume at some point you just let the farming robots free and you're like, yeah, sure, give food to anyone who shows up because why not? I think so, especially if you're, I can't really. So like, what do you do with money then? I don't know. I mean, I, I think it depends on what stage we're talking about, right? Like, because mm-hmm. right now money's still worth stuff. Right. And I do think that, I, I hadn't put it that way in my head, but now I will forever, uh, that we're, uh, did you say pre-sing, you said oh. pre-singularity or like early singularity, I think is what you said, early not pre. Yeah. yeah. Um, you know, I, th- I think we're, we are in what the future history books, if they exist, will remark as, you know, the early singularity. Mm. Um, you know, money still worth stuff now. Mm. Uh, yeah. In a year, there won't really be worth, it won't really be a good use of money to spend money to like have someone make art for you. Right. You know, um, maybe well, that's worth year, money now. Like, right well okay yeah. it might be worth money right now still for at least a few months that's what i'm saying yeah, yeah. Well, but it's it's getting very quickly to the point where it's going to be cost nothing to get a picture of whatever yeah. i want yeah. one, um, one way that you could sort of like co-opt normal economic language to talk about this is to say like deflation begins to increase um faster and faster until eventually money sort of doesn't mean anything anymore because it's yeah. like because right now we have like in inflation is is basically like the the, the value of your money has, has decreased slightly. And as soon it will be like, well, you can buy a house for the equivalent of an hour of your labor because houses are so cheap. Mm-hmm. Um, and then at a certain point, it's like your labor is unnecessary. So just, you want a house? Sure. You can have a mountain. I'm going to feel really dumb for having bought a house um, a, you know, six months before the early singularity rather than, you know, a year in well, when it costs way less. Well, but. no, no, because it won't matter because your money won't matter that's anymore. That's a good point. Like, like that's, I, I, don't, I don't know this for a fact, but I would suspect that, like, you know, when, when we start building orbital O'Neill cylinders, then, it, then it's like you want thousands and thousands of acres of, of O'Neill cylinder land to, I mean, that's what's one funny thing is, is land on earth might be the only thing that actually has a value attached to it because mm-hmm. um, it's still limited. It's, it's limited. And, and uh, even if you were to, you know, pave over the oceans, it's, there's, there's only so much surface area, mm-hmm. but other, you know, so you, so by, by buying a house, you've purchased the only thing <laughs> worth anything anymore, which All is, right. uh, well, luckily it's a very vertical house <laughs> and like the actual like ground it takes up is, is, I don't know, about the size that four cars would take up. Also, um, the owning of a house is not worth shit if there isn't a violent structure in place to enforce your property rights. Like, I guess you can you can enforce your own property rights with a gun and yourself, but buying a house is is a bet that the government is going to continue and will continue to want to it's a enforce your thing. property. Yeah. yeah, you know it's it's funny, and I know John Mulaney made a joke about this, but it wasn't technology related technology related it was just like that's so far away but when we signed our paperwork last month or six weeks ago for the house and it's like here look your final mortgage payment in december of 2052 and i'm like <laughs> there's no way you guys are getting a payment on december of 2052 from me yeah. like one way or another that's just not happening yeah. and it's 
it's kind of funny. Part of me wonders, I think you're kind of, kind of working through this right now. Like, mm-hmm. how do you live your life with the expectation that things will be radically different in the not too distant future? Mm-hmm. Like there was a, a comedian that I might've mentioned on the show and I forget her name, but she was a social worker and she was talking about like how she takes a bunch of trips and she's like, no, I know what you're thinking. How do I take vacations like this on a social worker salary? Easy. I don't save for retirement. Mm-hmm. And, um, it, it kind of makes, makes you wonder, it's like, why would I save half my money or, you know, whatever, some large fraction of it in the, it, it seems like the, the prospect of saving money for any useful outcome is, is getting less and less. Right. So, um, Charlie asked me about this. She was like, I, I'm scared about the future. I don't know how to prepare for this. How do I secure assets or whatever? I'm like, look, I don't even know if the government's going to continue to exist in 10 years because of the radical changes. What's the point of having these piece of papers that say I own that house or that house if someone else is living within it and I'm not going to show up with a gun and be like, get out or give me money. Like, what? So what I have come down to is I think uh, this goes back to, I think Highline first said it, all wealth is biological. Uh, which I think means that Matt has taken the correct approach here, where you have, <laughs> <laughs> where you have people who love you and will um, work to keep you alive and keep you happy because that's the only thing that's still going to be around if everything else goes away. And obviously, I have not chosen that route. I have put a lot of uh, my gambling on the system continues to function in some way. Uh, and, you know... Well, you didn't... I didn't mean to cut you off, but I, yeah. I was going to say you, you, what you did differently is you didn't create beings with like a biological pre-programming to like want to take care of you, mm-hmm. but you do have friends. I do. Right. And I realized that friends... I'll feed you for a while. If, yes. If, you know. <laughs> friends ties are not quite as strong as <laughs> biological family ties, but they're still there. And I mean, this is another reason I keep trying to push for local physical space communities for people mm-hmm. to actually live near each other because first of all, that makes the bonds much stronger and also makes it much easier to coordinate with people like... Do I know how you're doing if singularity happens and I'm at home and you're at home? No, I have no idea. And it'll probably take me two days to make it over to you on foot. But uh, if you can just check next door, you're like, hey, uh, hey, Matt, you still mm-hmm. alive over here? And that's like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. And I'm like, okay, cool, cool. I'm, I'm glad to hear that. We'll set up some of those uh, those fire like watchtowers they had in the two towers between <laughs> us and Fort Collins. So we can talk to people 60 miles away. Yeah. And then they can talk to people in Cheyenne and we'll just get those going. Right. Yeah. It's probably a more efficient yeah. way to do it, but is there a more fun way? I don't think so. Hmm. I, I hope. I mean, I do hope the future looks more like the past, in, in the specific sense of of us having greater access to each other's, uh, you know, like like just basic social human monkey interactions. Because mm-hmm. right now it's it's rather difficult to actually arrange that. Unless you're like literally in college, right? And we talked about this. I, yeah. I, I do. I, I want. I want that future. Um, We'll see. Well, and the cool thing is, you know, like you said, physical distance might not be as big a factor, right? Mm. Like right now, I'm. It's funny. I feel out of touch, but I'm assuming kids do all their interactions on phones. Fifteen year olds, right? I don't know if like do they go to each other's houses anymore? I used to like leave the house an hour after sunrise and be like, I'll be in touch before dinner to let you know if I'm coming home, and like then my I'd just be gone for yeah. ten hours, no one to know where I was. I don't think that's what kids are doing these days. Maybe I'm wrong, yeah. but I, I guess what I'm saying is like. If they can interact with each other with more fidelity than just like text on a screen, something I don't want to say metaverse style, but like a non shitty version of that, yeah. right? Or the the future, something something like that. That sounds actually pretty desirable and awesome. You get yeah. to hang out with people where you don't actually like have to drive all the way to their house, you know, and you actually get to hang out with them, not just like talk with them on voice chat while mm-hmm. playing games or something. Yeah, I would accept that as a 
as, as a compromise, maybe. People keep talking about VR, but I, maybe it's going to be awesome. I don't think I would be. I don't think it can replace humans until we get to the level of holodeck VR. <laughs> I, I don't have a very good sniffer, uh, but still, just being in the same room as someone and having having their sound waves hit your skin, having their smell possibly be like part of you. I think that's that's a big deal. Just being able to see someone, no matter how good the VR helmet is, and hear them, I don't think is nearly enough. I guess what I was thinking of better metaverse. I was thinking full on Matrix jacked in. Oh, okay. Yeah, okay. sense sense data of you know all the way. Gotcha. It, it's interesting because I I I don't feel super strongly about this one or the other. But like I'm I'm imagining like if we were instead of actually sitting around this table together, if we had our avatars projected and like we were projecting our avatars like as we wanted them to appear mm-hmm. instead of as we actually are, like. On the one hand, it's like, well, that's kind of cool because it like represents you. But on the other hand, it's like, but that's not really you. Right. And and th- and then there's some level of artifice and distance. And you maybe, can... yeah, I, I don't, I don't know right. really how I feel about this. I mean, I almost want to say maybe that's even more you, but mm-hmm. also you're right because then it may be more what your inner self is like, but what your biological self is like is actually pretty damn important too. Mm-hmm. These shoes you have are to keep it. These shoes are way too cool for me, right? <laughs> And, and if I was if I was honestly representing myself, I'd be wearing brown slip-ons rather than these multicolored, you know, cool ones. Yeah. yeah. One last thing I wanted to touch on because I brought this up in the Mind Killer. Uh, have you heard about the AI superpowers that currently exist? Not by that name. No. What's <laughs> what is it? Okay, so there there's two of them now. With 87% accuracy, AI can determine someone's sex purely via their retinal scan, which. No one understands right now because as far as any human know th- knows, there's no difference between male and female retinas. <laughs> so no one knows how this is happening. Also, interestingly, a different AI can tell someone's race with a high degree of accuracy via a chest x-ray only. Which, again, they're like, we, we don't think there's any difference between the various races chest x-rays and they went to the point where like well okay it, it, there might be something with mineral density there there uh, some of these other things they try to blind it to those and it didn't affect how the ai did at all mm. either positively or negative it just didn't matter the ai was still like yeah i can tell this person's race and so they n- no one knows mm-hmm. how the ai knows these things and my favorite quote from this uh, I pulled out of the article was this is concerning because superhuman capabilities are generally much more difficult to control, regulate, and prevent from harming people. <laughs> Which I think is a hell of an understatement. Yeah, pure <laughs> uh, words have never been spoken. I, I always find it to be true that superhuman <laughs> capabilities. Uh, yeah, the X-ray thing. I can kind of imagine. You know, like I'm not very well traveled, but I had a like I had a coworker who was um, Swedish. If you can imagine and, it, they already tried to blind the AI to it. But like. It's specifically what he looks like. It's and so like something the in the X-ray scan. The nobody X-ray knows what like it is, something, right? Uh, yeah. And yeah. so it must be something we're not, we're not noticing. But maybe there's like a slightly different way that you know the 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 rib cavity is is oriented or something. Mm-hmm. You know, just like for some reason, like the Swedish guy had like a very strong jaw, and so like Swedish guys on TV. Mm-hmm. And so maybe that's just how this works. You know, but the I mean, eye thing obviously is there's something that it's picking there up. There must on, be something. But we have no idea what. That's yeah. wild. Got a very Scandinavian clavicle there. Yeah, <laughs> right. Well, there are people who can like tell that sort of thing, right? Sure. Uh, I'm not. Again, I, I don't know. I'm not well traveled enough to be able to tell. I'm actually embarrassingly bad at it. There was like a joke on Big Bang Theory where Penny, like the person who represented humans in that show, was 
trying to get a, trying to get an act, acting job, and they said her face was too Midwestern. Mm. And she's like, "What does it even mean?" And Sheldon's like, "Well, Midwestern faces are characterized by." It's like, "I know what it means." <laughs> uh, so you know, like that sort of thing, right? Uh, Mi- well, you know, Midwestern chest cavities are characterized by. And the robot, why don't you just ask? You know, this AI to talk to Chat a Chat GTP Chat. Yeah, that's hard to say three times fast. Mm-hmm. Chat GTP. But like, can you tell us why what what it sees? I don't think it works like that. But as soon as these things can talk to each other, that'll be another big leap and bound in these things, right? Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I agree. All right. Well, fun. If we're still here in two weeks, uh, I'm sorry. That's... <laughs> we actually won't be here in two weeks because it's going to be Christmas, and we just take Christmas off. Oh yeah, that's right. But we will be here in four weeks. Yes, possibly five. <laughs> possibly five. And What's uh, up? No, just, just you know, if we're still here in five weeks. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Well, in addition to thanking Matt for once again hanging out with us and, and uh, having this conversation, we do have to thank William Wire this week for, wait, this fortnight. We always say week. I think we make this hiccup literally every other week. But I, I know there's a number of shows where we haven't had this issue. All right. Well, anyway, William, hopefully you enjoyed this episode. I forget what even the main subject was. What were we talking about earlier? <laughs> it was about the decision trees. Decision right. Trees. Decision trees. That's yeah. valuable stuff. It is. All right. Yeah, we that, hope the decision tree that uh, brought you to listening to us is a great one that keeps bringing you to lots of more listenings to us. Yeah, yeah keep doing what you're doing because this was a gr- already a great decision. You're on the right track. Yeah, yeah, and I hope that it further leads you to typing in guildoftherose.org into your browser and clicking subscribe for a free trial membership. This is not uh, coming from me as a paid shill. It's coming from me as as uh, earnest. Um, believer uh, be- well earnest believer and sincerely expressed mm-hmm. i'm totally gonna so i i should have mentioned this before the content of the courses is available uh free right yes so like you know i think doing it with the community you laid out why that's super valuable and that's totally worth doing but if someone's like well this i i need help grasping this decision tree stuff we can find this on go to the rose.com and it'll link to the videos yeah. right i could even make sure that you guys have the specific uh, links to my course sessions if you want to put those somewhere. To Perfect. Oh, yeah. yeah. I'm going to watch that. that and make a decision tree for something at least of medium importance. I'll try and think of something before I'm on the show next. So Excellent. I remember, I'll put that at the top of the show to remind what the decision was. Yeah. All right. Cool. Thank you very much for that. Uh, thank you, Matt, for being here with us. This was awesome. Thanks for having me. And we'll see everybody in the near future. Yay. Bye. Bye.